welcome back to Strictly Come Hamster. I am one of your hosts today, Joe Ford, uh, and I am immediately going to hand over to the more handsome, more charismatic, more intelligent and completely underpaid host, Mr. Rod Brown. Hello, Completely Rod. unprepared. Hey, Joe, I wondered who the hell you were talking about then. Hello, good evening. How are you? I've just dashed in from dinner, so I'm a bit unprepared, but I'll be fine. I'm sure you can wing it. And we're on our first classic uh, discussion of the classic series tonight, after two looks at the uh, modern series. So that's oh, uh, very it's exciting. about bloody time. We've been is, talking yeah. about so all those Stephen Moffat stories. This. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a very different podcast today. Um, so yeah, thank you and welcome everyone to uh, Strictly Come Hamster, which is the Doctor Who Championship podcast in which every two weeks Joe and I chasse our way across the Toymaker's dancing floor, accompanied by two very special guests. Uh, and together as a group, we're going to be ranking, uh, congratulating, condemning and reviewing a range of stories to decide which one is going to pick up the recursion glitter ball and who's going home to Pease Pottage. So let's meet today's very special guests. Gentlemen, would you like to introduce yourselves? Who are we starting with? Let's start with James. James is on the left, left to right. Hello, I am James, uh, James Lark. Uh, what, what more information do you need? That's well, you've been on every... several of these before. I, I, I have. I'm uh, proud to have appeared on various Hamster Book Club uh, episodes. Most recently, discussing the Glorious Dead with Joe, which I believe has been a bit of a, a bit of a, a flash in the pan hit. A triumph, I would say. Any chance for Christmas number one, do you think, with that? With that <laughs> no, the goblins have got that one. <laughs> if we have a Christmas number one, I'm too square, uh, scared someone's going to come at me with a shady tweet. Oh, no, let's move on. <laughs> don't worry, you don't want to know. Controver- you don't know, Controversy. you don't want to know. All right. Yeah. Moving we've swiftly also, on. We've also got the man of a thousand voices here. <laughs> <laughs> the Mikey Arwood uh, of podcasting. Yeah, no, I, well, maybe about ten voices. Hello, I'm John. Uh, John Bedsalia, and I've done a couple of uh, commentaries with Joey. Um, Pyramids of Mars, that was the latest one, wasn't it? Pyramids of Mars, yeah. Yeah, Web of Fear, uh, yes. City of Death, and the Unspeakable one. Which... The Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe, oh. that was our first. Yeah. <laughs> what a place to start. Well, today we are in classic series territory, so we are in Season 17, uh, season 17, God, I'm losing the plot already. Season 11, <laughs> I find everyone did. I could see everyone panic them. I've been watching story. The Curse of Peladon for nothing. <laughs> Monster of Peladon, you've, you've caught it off me, James. Oh, no. No, I did watch the Monster of Peladon. You're, you you're haven't done right. season nine, have you? <laughs> <laughs> this could be a very interesting podcast. We're doing season 11. So, John Pope Oh, season 11? Season. Yes. Well, series 11. Oh. No, I'm joking. Sorry, go on. <laughs> so before we get into talk about the individual stories, I think what'll be really interesting is just to talk generally about the series as a whole and when did you first experience it? When did you first see it? How did you first see it? What are you kind of how did you feel about it then? How do you feel about it now? Just general kind of overview of your general feelings about the, the series. Let's let's start with the guests. Let's start with James. Well, some of these I watched on VHS back in the day when when Doctor Who was sort of like gold dust, but John Pertwee seemed to be everywhere. They kept repeating his stories on on BBC Two, and uh, for for whatever reason, um, people seemed to have a lot of his stuff. Dave, everyone had Day of the Daleks when I was growing up, um, and 
So I think the first one that I borrowed was the Time Warrior. It, if it wasn't that, it was Planet of the Spiders, but I'm pretty sure that came later because that was a sort of double double VHS, one of those big fat VHS boxes. Um, but I watched, I, I was certainly uh, uh, in in my teens and probably my early teens when I saw both of those stories. Um, and I then I sort of caught up bit by bit that I didn't watch Death to the Daleks until actually relatively late on. Um, so it's quite quite a spread in terms of the the order in which I experienced them, um, and uh, last time I I watched it, apart from kind of the last couple of weeks when I've been desperately revising, um, because I understand this is a very serious process that we're going to go through in a moment. <laughs> um, uh, I was in my, my marathon of Doctor Who, and um, at the time I considered season eleven about as complacent as Doctor Who had been so far. Oh, ouch. Okay. Interesting. I'm sure we will come to that when we come to the stories. John? Well, I... Well, the problem was, I mean, I was... Um, I was born three months after the last part of Planet of the Spiders. So I honestly don't know if I, you know, managed to catch the... Because they used to do Christmas repeats in uh in the mid 70s so i don't know if i would have um caught the christmas repeat maybe maybe i did in a high chair and uh you know <laughs> was, uh, you know chowing down on christmas turkey at three months old but yeah i mean like like james i um first experienced season 11 with the videos so it would have been death of the daleks first which was christmas 1989 um i remember my granddad who was a big Doctor Who fan, he used to love it. And he was delighted that I got the present, so he watched that on Christmas Day instead of a movie. I forget what it was on the, on that day. Um, Planet Spiders, August 91. And again, it was one of those great big clunky VHS boxes that, you know, you needed, you know, you, you needed weight training to love those around. <laughs> I love those back home because it was so bloody heavy. Um, so, yeah, I... Bought that, um, yes, it, it was when I passed my GCSEs and I got done reasonably well-ish. So, uh, yeah, I got that. Then it was Monster of Peladon, which wasn't until quite a while later. I think it was um, about 2003, I think it was. Um, I, I think it was in an HMV sale back in the days when we used to go and, you know, buy things from HMV. Um, then Invasion of the Dinosaurs, which was the single tape video, and it, part one is in black and white, and it just looks weird. Um, and ironically, and I've been searching for the video for so long, and I never found it. I used to go to every charity shop in the area, and I never found it. But when the Time Warrior finally came out on DVD in September 2007, I think it was, and that, that was when I finally got to see it. Um, yeah. Um, but I've got to say, I I really like season eleven. I, th I think it's got. I think it's probably one of the most underrated seasons in the run. I think we've got two quite uh, diametrically opposed right. views there. Well, I should okay. say I've, I have slightly revised my view on on um, my, on my rewatch of the last couple of weeks. I've had a great time watching it. Okay, interesting. Joe, what about you? Uh, two of these I watched to death when I was very young. 
uh, Time Warrior and Death to the Daleks. So people can tell me to their blue in the face that the music in Death to the Daleks is terrible. And I still think it's that. one of the greatest pieces of music I've ever heard. And I know every <laughs> single beat. It's, it's the Mr. Ben thing, tune, isn't it? I'm sure it is. People say that music when they come out of the ship is not scary. To me, aged five years old, it was terrifying. Um, uh, I... Planet of the Spiders, I came to really, really late. My mate Matt Dillon had the VHS copy of that, and he was always saying to me, oh, I'll lend it to you. Don't buy it. Say, your mum saves some money. I'll lend it. And he never did. So I didn't get that till it came out on DVD, which feels like much, much later than everything else. Monster Repellers on I got on video, and the tracking went on it, and I refused to buy another copy because it was so boring. Um, <laughs> I have revised my opinion on it a little bit, actually. So I'm not, I'm, I'm still leaving my power to try a little bit. I don't think it's entirely terrible. But, um, and what's the other one? Oh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs. That was the last VHS release. Hmm. But I first watched that. Was it the last ever? Yeah, it was the last. No, it was Reign of yeah. the Terror and the Web of Fear. Oh, it was late though, wasn't it? Yeah, very yeah, late. Really October late. 2003 it came out. There was an occasion when uh, UK Gold was broadcasting Doctor Who stories at sort of seven o'clock in the morning or something. And I remember after a very drunk night out, I'd gone to Brighton, oh, an amazing shag, and I slept on the beach and I got the first train home at five o'clock in the morning and watched Invasion of the Dinosaurs half cut. And it was amazing. I absolutely the best evening it. ever. I, I'll tell you what. <laughs> as a climax to that evening, you, you couldn't I've do better. That's one for the obituaries, isn't it? Um, I think I agree with John. I think Eleven is hugely undervalued. You can see where it, where Barry and Terence are looking at Moonbase Three occasionally, but I think the stories are still pretty solid. I just think the team of the Third Doctor and Sarah is so refreshing. And I think it's Sarah Jane at her best in this season. So I, I think it's great. I've, I've realised, Joe, what my role on this podcast is going to be. And that's going to be the old man who says, I remember watching this first time round. Because I do. Oh, no. So I know. I know. It didn't matter so much with the new series. But now. Yeah. No, I know. I've realised that. I'm aging myself. So, yeah, I was born in the ancient days of 66. So I was seven when it started and eight when it finished. So I have huge memories of of watching this i was absolutely besotted with doctor who from before i could speak i think so i have very very clear memories of this um time warrior was the first time we had a color tv so it was the first doctor who series i'd, I'd seen one episode at a friend's house in color um and then nagged my parents incessantly to get a color tv after that um so we had a color tv from time warrior onwards so that's really clear i remember the dinosaurs as being tremendous. Uh, maybe I've revised my opinions on that a little bit, but at, at seven, they were absolutely terrifying. I remember being rooted to the spot. Um, I remember absolutely breaking my heart when John Pertwee regenerated. Um, <laughs> and I do remember I was inconsolable, I think, for the entire night. I mean, it was just, you know, the most traumatic thing that could happen to a child. And a neighbor very unusually came across the road that night and I remember I was in floods of tears and he was looking very oddly at me wondering whether I was you know a victim of child abuse and I remember my parents kind of just looking very dismissively at saying oh Doctor Who's died don't worry about him it's just Doctor Who and 
push me in a corner. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've just have loads of memories of, of the season going through. I, I loved it at the time. Probably revised my opinion a little bit since. I don't think it's the strongest of the Pertwee years, but there's still a lot of gold in there. Fabulous. So a couple of questions for you then before we go into the stories. Joe Grant or Sarah? Oh, that's a toughie. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Let's go to John first. <laughs> yeah, thanks. thanks. Um, I mean, they're, they're both kind of different dynamics. So it's very kind of choose the very hard to choose one or the other. With Joe, there's, you know, there's obviously that that big friendship that John Pertwee and Katie Manning had, and that comes through in spades on their stories. But like Joey said, I really like the the new dynamic between John Pertwee and Elizabeth Sladen. It's a little it's a little bit more grown up. I mean, you know, Sarah Jane doesn't really say how high if Pertwee asks her to jump. There's a lot more kind of yeah, just a slightly more mature relationship, I think. But you know, and she's you know she's feisty, and she's um, she's independent, and she's pretty much everything that Joe wasn't. Although having said that, Joe did become more independent in in the last season. You know, season ten. You know, she goes off and does her own thing. So uh, I've completely um, crushed that argument after that. So that was a complete waste of time. Um, but I'm going to duck out <laughs> and say I, I think I think both of them. Sorry. I'm going to come down on one side of the fence and say Sarah Jane Smith. Ooh. But, and this is one thing on which I have not revised my view, but one th one thing that seemed really clear to me on, on this rewatch, <clears throat> I've, I've tended to assume that Sarah Jane um, really kind of came into her own as Tom Baker's companion and benefited from a change of doctrine, a change of production team, and being a brilliant actress, Elizabeth Sladen was able to use all of those things to build this, <coughs> this character. What was clear to me watching it back this time was how fully formed the character is. I would say, in the performance more than the writing, I actually think she takes a few seeds in the way that the character is written and runs with them and builds this character that is is much better in the realisation than it maybe was on paper. And the other thing that was clear is how much this benefits John Pertwee's performance, which suddenly kind of finds a new lease of life in his final season, um, a new sense of humour, a new, um, as John says, it's it's slightly more adult. There's certainly the relationship is slightly more adult. And there's something brilliant about the fact that she doesn't even really start out as a companion. She wanders into the TARDIS. For, for a couple of episodes, she's actually thinks she's, she's fighting the Doctor, which is a, a, a master, you know, comic masterstroke, but, but also gives her this amazing independence that she's, she's, creating relationships with a whole different set of characters and coming up with plans to, to defeat the doctor but you know she returns to earth in in dinosaurs and, and she and there's nothing saying that she's going to carry on traveling with him you know that's not a done deal and even in death of the daleks it seems like it's a one-off trip she's she's very reluctant to step in there so she comes into the series as her own character with her own agenda and i think that's does the series a, a world of good actually I, th I, th I think she's incredible I think she's really good in this uh, season um, and I think John Pertwee pulls it out of the bag you know sort of gives as good as he gets with her he straight away he's winding her up as soon as he knows who she is he's like oh, we need someone around here to make the coffee 
And she's like, if you think I'm going to spend my time making cups of coffee for you, it's, it's a great report. It's so lovely. And the way he sort of, for whenever he looks at her, in those first couple of stories especially, it's with this this wry grin as if he's sort of enjoying watching her make these discoveries and he's going to let her do it at her own pace, but he knows who's really in charge. It's lovely. I love the bit in Planet of the Spiders as well, where she's trying to explain about um, all the stuff that's going on at the monastery. He ain't listened to a word of it, is he? Yes. They're so great together. It's almost like they're equals in a way that him and Joe never were. I mean, my answer is, oh, it's tough. I think in terms of chemistry, it's John Pertwee and Casey Manning. I just don't think their chemistry was bested in that era because they just adored each other. As a companion, it's Sarah Jane, for sure. Because she has the agency to actually drive the stories in this season in a way that Joe Grant possibly wouldn't if she wasn't being tied up or twisting her ankle or whatever's going on this week. Except, as John said, possibly in season 10, where she does do a bit of plot driving. So, no, I'm going to say Sarah as well. Yeah, for me, I think kind of nostalgia drives me to say Joe. I mean, of all the companions throughout 60 years, Elizabeth Slayton is by far and away my favourite. But there's something about that nostalgia about Joe and John Pertwee. And it is different with, with Elizabeth Slayton. I mean, she's fantastic from that. She's so much more naturalistic, I think. And that's what makes it for me that she's just all the little looks and the winks and the kind of body language that, that Elizabeth Sladen did that just makes her feel like a rounded person as opposed to just acting acting a role. I just think she's magnificent. But the nostalgia factor probably brings me a little bit back to Joe, but it's so hard to choose between, isn't it? I think you've got three brilliant companions in the Poe era, so yep. choosing between them is tough. And three very so, different companions as well. Mm, very. So I've got one more question for you. Hoomobile, yay or nay? Oh, God. Yay. <laughs> Say yay. I like it. I, I, I think it's, it's you know, perfect it's... for John Pertwee's talk. Again, it wouldn't make any sense with, uh, I mean, I can't imagine, can't imagine William Hartnell driving the Hoomobile, can you? But <laughs> oh, it just I would sense. love to see that. I could definitely imagine <laughs> Trouton driving. Joe is now imagining William Hartnell driving the Hoomobile. So, yeah, demonstrably, you can imagine it, in fact. Picking, um, up, picking up Jackie Hill on the way to rehearsals. Yeah. I'm, I'm picturing it now. I, I, I think it's. <laughs> Oh, I mean, I'm it's the king so of camp, him. but that, it's that just is camp, everything about it. It, it is it very is camp. So camp, only Pertwee, yeah. But then it makes me laugh that later on, John Pertwee, one of his famous um, anecdotes at conventions was he was always berating K9, saying, "Oh, it's too childish and too glib mm. to have a robot dog." But he had bloody alien car flying around. <laughs> like, mm, not really sure he should be throwing I mean, stuff. It's, it's insane as a car, but when it yeah. starts flying. <laughs> really badly somewhere else yeah you get the feeling barry let said oh, okay john it's your last series we'll, we'll let you have this one it whatever really you want like yeah, yeah okay <laughs> we'll, we give up fighting with you you can have it we're leaving shortly <laughs> brilliant thank you chaps okay so before we get into the stories joe we've had loads of readers comments um about the season overall so should we deal with some of those um Oh, you, you do the first one. So I kick off, right. So Paul Eilert said, it's my favourite poetry season, possibly because it has the amazing Sarah Jane Smith in it. But all the stories are incredibly strong. It's nice to move clearly away from the Doctor being stranded on Earth. Interesting. Anthony Carroll says, it's the worst poetry season. Sarah Jane is wonderful and the Time Warrior... And the Time Warrior, sorry. Six episode <sighs> stories are too slow. 
well, that's indicative of the entire era, not just uh, 11. But thank you, Anthony. Mark Cochran, friend of the podcast, said the uh, best bit of season 11 is the regeneration of the plants of spiders and the arrival of the best doctor. So I think we know where uh, Mark's loyalties are. <laughs> Gary Russell says the worst bit of season 11 is the regeneration in Planet of the Spiders and the departure of the best doctor. Yeah. So I think we, we've got two very different. I think it's becoming quite clear that uh, this, this uh, season definitely divides people. Daniel Knight said it's regarded as the poor relation of the five poetry seasons, but I enjoy it. Dinosaurs and monster are better than their reputation. Death has great nostalgia value and the Time Warrior is great despite Alan Bromley's uninspired direction. Oh, we need to talk about that. Mm. I want to dispel that myth. Uh, Dave Rennie says season 11 is very underrated. It introduces the marvellous Elizabeth Sladen and has some bangers. He's not talking about Elizabeth Sladen there, is he? Let's hope not. Oh, I no. certainly hope not. There's probably more Katie Manning, but let's, <laughs> let's draw a veil over that one swiftly. <laughs> Paul Quinn said a super season, which doesn't always receive the love it deserves, presumably because of the received wisdom that Delgado's death prompted an exodus, marking the end of an era. And didn't Pope want to stay, but outpriced himself? There's a lot to be said for seeing how they managed without Delgado in a run of stories that continue the reduction of unit that began in season 11, or season 10, weirdly and simultaneously an echo and the reverse of season 7. Always a smart chap. But it's a good point, actually, isn't it? Do 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 we miss Delgado in this last series? Because there, there was, I mean, we all know the story that you know the, it was written as that the final game was supposed to be the end of Pertwee with the Doctor and the Master in in big uh, climactic confrontation. Um, but do we miss him? No, I don't think we do. And I and I think it has to do with this new companion dynamic. Actually, I think that uh, as I said, John Pertwee's playing it with more slightly more of a sense of humour than than ever before. I think um, it's a little bit like he knows it's his last season. I don't know when he did the deal or when he made the decision, but it, it feels a little bit like he's decided to have a bit of fun on his way out. And I'm not sure that would have. I'm not sure how that would have worked with the with the master in the dynamic. But actually, the fact that the stories are all kind of self-contained, I think adds to that slightly kind of holiday atmosphere to the whole thing. And it also kind of feels a little bit like a soft reboot. You know, you've got, you know, a new companion. Uh, you've also got new titles. And it just kind of feels like, a, you know, it's kind of resetting the button, button a little bit. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, obviously, you know, we don't have the the greatest master anymore, which is a shame, but it, it does kind of feel like it's, it's on a new course, I think. I think it's very strange that Sarah Jane misses out on the master, both sides of her era, by a, a couple of stories. She, yeah. He bows out just before she starts, and he's back just after she leaves. Um, Melvin Pena says, this is a blockbuster season for Pertwee's final bite of the apple, especially with precious Liz in to manage the transition. Jason Thompson, who's on our last podcast, said the season as a whole really changed in my estimation when I did my first marathon, watching one or two episodes a night. The six parters are a chore to sit through in one go. It's not the first time that's been said, mm. but spread out as intended. Let's not forget they work really well. The intriguingly named Mighty Meep says it's not my favourite poetry season, but I still enjoy it a lot. There's so much going on. Sarah instantly having great chemistry with the Doctor, Yates' betrayal and dealing with trauma, a humbler Doctor accepting the need to pay for his adventurousness, an excellent character study. Big Orange Michael said, it's easy to say that Perwee isn't as engaged, but that really comes later on in the season, after Death to the Daleks, where he seems a bit bored at times. 
where are these names coming from? Lim Lim King the Ape says, outstanding. I was never a huge fan of Pertwee's Doctor, but rewatched the whole run during COVID and fell in love with his stuff. Whilst not quite hitting the peaks of Tom's era, they are stories I come back to most often. Proper comfort blanket stuff. I Darren said, it's a great season. Death to the Daleks and Time Warrior were early VHS releases, so some of my first Pertwee experiences and very nostalgic. Paul Smy says, season 11 is a bit hit and miss for me, a bit like the Pertwee era as a whole. Ooh. Eric White said, one of my earliest memories, lots of great stuff. And finally, for you very patient gentlemen watching, Melton Rob says, I must be rare as I actually enjoy all the stories from that season. I don't have a favourite or a least favourite. I'll happily watch any of them. Fantastic. And doesn't that lead us neatly on to round one of tonight's show? So in round one, round one is our knockout round. So what we're going to do is we've got five stories. We're all going to pick one story and then we'll argue over who's going to do the final one. But each of us is going to pick one story. And in time-honored hamster tradition, we're going to give three reasons why it should either stay in the competition or you can give three reasons why it can be knocked out. And your job is to persuade and control the rest of us to your way of thinking. Um, so let's let's start. I think it's only fair that we start with our guests. So, John, James, who feels who feels the most passionate about either defending or defaming one of the stories from season eleven? Oh, I, well, I like them all. Even Monster of Peladon, I think, has got a lot to Oh, you've got five to choose from, then. Go on, then, John. You've, you've, oh, uh... right. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to pick my favourite one of the season, which is uh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Um, and I, th I think it's probably one of the most underrated adventures. And for years, it would get, like, two out of ten scores in, like, the... I, th I think it's the official handbook. They both the reviewers give it two out of ten, which I think is mad. Um, yeah, okay, the dinosaurs look crap. There's no way they pass muster today. But if you're really watching Doctor Who for the effects, then you're watching the wrong show. And I think the script is is just absolutely superb. And I think it's really structured well. I think it's directed well as well. I think if you ignore the visual uh, the um, the dinosaurs, the rest of the visuals actually look superb. I think all that you know creepy empty location work in part one which paddy russell i think uh she filmed three weeks before she went um she and a cameraman went in a car and drove around london and she got these establishing shots and she really got her money's worth i think um and it's also got a great cast as well it's got some really good um really good guest actors you got uh peter miles john bennett um edith from a lower low um <laughs> Carmen Silvera. Carmen Silvera. Carmen Silvera. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, my, my brain is fried. Um, and also, and one thing that I really enjoy is it kind of takes away the coziness of the unit era by making Mike Yates a traitor. Mm. I mean, you know, the, Richard Franklin says he's not a traitor, but he is a traitor. But, you know, he, he sails out to the unit. I think that is a brilliant twist. Um, and it's it's quite, I think it's actually quite daring for the period. I think it's actually, um, you know, them trying to do something a little bit different with the format. And I, I think it really works. So, yeah, I think there's a whole load of reasons why you could enjoy this. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. Let's go in and see what some of our listeners had to say about. We have loads of comments about Invasion of the Dinosaurs. It's really interesting. Some of these stories had very few comments and some have had slews of comments and Invasion of the Dinosaurs, we had loads. So let's start with those. So Cy Hart said, Dinosaurs is best of the season without a doubt. Great plot. Sarah leads her own story. The dinosaurs are okay. Not as bad as made out. And Pertwee bashes a pterodactyl with a mop. Yates' story is so good too, the unthinkable happening. The first episode is really strong. Tony Filer has one line. He says, dinosaurs is a cracking story with some dodgy plastic beasties. <laughs> James H said, unlike the puppets, this story has balls. Oh. Not, always, <laughs> not always successful, but it definitely has ambition and multiple plots. David Gillespie Pratt says, ignore the puppets and it's a great story, unworthy of its reputation. The cliffhanger where Sarah wakes up on the spaceship is a series best. Also, it has one of the heroes turned traitor, as John just said, which Doctor Who doesn't do all that often and takes guts. Lovely Lucy McCall says she loves that Sarah Jane has her own plot on the spaceship. She also loves the dynamic between her and the Doctor, the twist and the turns of the plots with Yates' betrayal and Benson's loyalty. She likes the dinosaurs. Okay, so we've got a first vote for the dinosaurs, but um, Lucy points out they're not the real threat the humans are, and they're truly scary, especially Carmen Silvera's Ruth. Uh, Jason Thompson has not scrimped on the detail, as usual, and <laughs> says, I... <laughs> I curse receive fan wisdom for making me put up, put off seeing this until I got a VHS release. I loved it. The dinosaurs are generally rubbish, sure, although the scenes of the T-Rex waking up in the hangar are also pretty good, all things considered. But the story around them is great. It also has a top Benton moment where he could pretend the Doctor overpowered him and the Brig would believe it, but he doesn't. He lets the Doctor actually overpower him. That's loyalty. Michael Storm said invasion would have been top, but there are enough petty annoyances to keep it off. The dinosaurs not being any one of them. Ooh, I wonder what his uh, annoyances were, but maybe we'll pick that up um, when we discuss it in a minute. Anthony Carroll, to base a show on dinosaurs that don't work is shoddy. Don't mince your words, Anthony. Jeff Richardson <laughs> said best purely for the enemy of the world subplot and Sarah's quest to expose <laughs> the secret. It's a wonderful cookie says, for me, Invasion of the Dinosaurs is not only the best of season 11, but an all-time top tenner. I'm noticing a positive trend here. Beautifully written, maybe the first, the best first episode in all of Who. Beautiful stuff. John Llewellyn said, very simply, awesome, great story and direction. And finally, Mark Donoghue. Dinosaurs would be hailed as a classic if it had good monster effects. Fingers crossed for the Blu-ray. So, obviously, John has... Um lobbied us heavily for including and, main, and keeping uh, dinosaurs in. So what do we think as a panel? James, let's come to you first. Is it a yay or a nay? Are you agreeing with John or not? I agree with everything that uh, has been said about dinosaurs. I, th I think in terms of pure enjoyment, it's one of the uh, ones in this. It's probably my favourite in the season to watch. I think everything that's good about it is not done as well as it could be or should be. And that's where I mentioned complacency and i just think there's so much about invasion of the dinosaurs that we've seen better done elsewhere the first episode i'm i'm an absolute sucker for deserted london stories uh dalek invasion of earth first episode um 
it it's very atmospherically filmed, but they bungle it. Halfway through the episode, they suddenly cut to a scene with Unitin and all this mystery that's this this dread, this horror, this 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 um unknown is destroyed in a single scene because we're suddenly with unit and it's like oh it's an emergency in unit in control they should absolutely have seen the whole episode from the doctor and sarah's point of view they should not have left on there's um there's an episode of the avengers called the morning after which is not london it's st albans but they they, they managed to keep about 25 30 minutes of the episode going with without giving away any of the story which is just as well because when the story arrives it's, it's actually not that good but but it's all atmosphere i mean that can be said about a lot of Avengers episodes. Um, it, it's a great episode because it's so um, it, it builds up so much tension by not showing, but by just showing images of things happening and, and you don't know what's going on. Invasion of the Dinosaurs could have been like that. Uh, I would also cite the, the brilliant cliffhanger to um, episode three where Sarah is on a spaceship and suddenly it's like she's been on a spaceship for three months. The very next scene in episode four, we're back with Unit. And it's absolutely clear from that moment on that, that she hasn't been in a spaceship for three months. She can't have been because scenes are carrying on from where we were last week. Um, even Mike Yates, and I think it's brilliant that Mike Yates is a traitor. And yes, he's a traitor. And, and I think there's there's the potential for something so profoundly good there. And Richard Franklin plays it really well. There's this just this hint that the events of the Green Death caused a kind of breakdown. And he he does that really in his, it's a single line, I think. He, he, he delivers that all in his performance. But he never gets to justify his position. And, and what literally says about it is so kind of badly argued. You kind of think, well, has he just kind of had a breakdown? And, and actually, there was the potential for him to be the idealist that Mike Yates was from day one and really capitalise on that aspect of his character. He doesn't get a proper send off. He pulls a gun on the doctor and he gets, you know, he gets taken out. And I really feel to do that kind of uh, level of character development and then not deliver on it properly is is a great crime so i love dinosaurs but i feel like it's it so much of it is slightly rehashing former glories i love the scenes of pertwee in the jeep i love the scenes where he's you know running around the streets on his own but we've seen it all done better in earlier pertwee stories you know a, a lot of the action sequences feel like a kind of a last gasp you know a harking back to the havoc days uh and not quite doing it as well sorry it's to funny. be down on it are you, you're, are you keeping it in though, even so, despite those niggles? Um, yeah, let's let's keep it in. Fabulous. It's really interesting hearing you talk there, James, because the first two reasons I had for keeping this in was episode one and the episode three cliffhanger. <laughs> what you were saying there. But I, I, episode one, I absolutely got exact, and I've written down something very similar to what you said about the kind of halfway jolt. It's the beginning of episode one feels like we're going back to season seven a little bit. It's got that grittiness and earthiness to it. You've got looters and, you know, Renault's being revved like the Sweeney. It doesn't feel like the kind of cosy power stations that we've seen in the intervening unit years. It's it quite feels, refreshing later on. It is. It is. It feels like it's got that grittiness again. And so then, you as the you're absolutely right, you go back to the cosy unit. Well. Sorry, John. You've got the bloody corpse of the looter as well. Absolutely. Which is yeah. awesome. You don't yeah, see that sort of thing In the first shot the, from that playground and the abandoned toys, it's got oh, some yeah. really stylish direction in there. And even the dog sniffing at the car has got like, almost yeah. like a survivor's feel to it, yeah, doesn't it? absolutely. And it has got that grittiness. So I was saying, I was the same as you, kind of re-watching it now through kind of adult eyes. I felt a sense of disappointment when we went to the cosy unit set up and it just felt like, oh, you're showing your hand a little bit too early. And they even revealing... just needed to come in in part two, didn't they? Just exactly. have that whole first episode. Exactly. 
and and don't show the T Rex as good or bad as he is oh, until the cliffhanger. Absolutely, leave it. Why the you three minutes before the cliffhanger? Exactly yeah. when he's just bursting through a building. Oh, well, I fucking love that bit. <laughs> <laughs> there are some, yeah. But episode one is still a great episode. Episode three cliffhanger is still. I kind of had a slightly different takeaway, and maybe it's looking at through kind of modernised, although as, as a child I didn't get it, but I probably wouldn't at seven. But I think the fact that we're still seeing Sarah on the ship and Unit now, I think we're used to seeing stories happening in different times. So that doesn't necessarily kill that little bit for me. And I think that works really well. And it introduces us to a new set of characters that otherwise we're not going to get. And the other thing I want to say is they're just great characters in this. Um, we have got probably one traitor too many. I think we oh, get at least get, one too many. We get They're all Yates traitors. Yeah, we get Yates revealed in two. We get Grover revealed in three. We get Finch revealed in four. But what they do quite cleverly then in five is they make you think the brig might be a traitor too. Yeah. I think that's quite clever because we've had that run and suddenly there's that question mark, is the brigadier also a traitor? So that's quite nice. Um, and I like that in episode five. I'm I'm keeping it in. I, I think he's got Hulk's typical. Um, it's not black or white one way or the other. I think he's got sympathy sympathy on both sides. And the doctor even says that you know he sympathises and empathises with what Mike's saying, but not the way he's going about it. And the messaging was pretty on the nose long before Orphan Fifty Five. I was just going to say that you know <laughs> this is the doctor staring out the screen, giving an environmental message at the end of it. And weirdly enough, people don't seem to have an issue when it's John Pertwee doing it, but they do when it's Jodie Whittaker, which is curious. Um, I really like the fact that it's left-wing villains in this, because I think, you know, Malcolm Hulk is uh, left-wing, and it would be obvious for him to go in the other direction. And by all accounts, he'd rub shoulders with some pretty extreme left-wingers, and he puts them right <laughs> at the heart of the story, which is quite a bold thing to do. I like the environmental message. I don't think we get enough of it, if I'm honest. And I think it is reminding us to do the right things. Here we are in 2023 and we're still not doing the right things. So I don't think anybody paid attention, but never mind. Sarah has a brilliant role in this. The only beat I don't like is when she goes into that lift with Sir Charles Grover, who is so clearly a villain at this point, And you just want to scream her out of the telly. But... <laughs> For about two episodes, she is doing her own thing. She's They basically told her to go run along and play, and she sort of drives the story in another direction, which is really refreshing. You just wouldn't get it with Joe. And despite the fact we cut to unit, I really love the direction of the first episode. I think the first 10 minutes has some really potent imagery. It's like the movie 28 Days Later done on you know 100th of the budget. And I don't know who said about black and white earlier. I think it works better in black and white. Oh, it's, it's brilliant in black and white. It's I really loved it. gritty. And, the, the... And, and unfortunately, the recolorization is, is, I mean, I just think the, the, the quality of the material is, is so poor. It, it's hard to make that look. It doesn't match the rest, <clears throat> the rest of the story. They should have left it. I also love the Doctor being on the run later in the story. I don't, I'm not sure that's as directed as tensely as it could be. It feels a little bit laborious. It's a bit but, 10 minutes of padding. <laughs> but the idea of the Doctor being on the run from Unit good is a great idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like when he's going in and out of that warehouse, you know, with the broken windows. And also the music. For, I think the Dudley Simpson score for this, I think it's, it's actually one of my all-time favourite um, music scores of Doctor Who. I, I think it's wonderful. This could be like the ultimate 
sort of renaissance story where, where perceived fan wisdom said this was a dog and a lot of people have watched it in later years and found that there's so much to enjoy so yeah i'm absolutely keeping this in it's probably my second favorite of the year and can i just call one moment because i think it just shows what an amazing actress elizabeth sladen is so it's the minute where she's um going to prove to to mark that they're not on a spaceship and she goes to open the the doors and she says you know we're not in space we're definitely not in space and she goes to open the door and she opens the door and she sees this corridor and the look on her face you know yeah. she wasn't 100 confident yeah. that she was right yeah. even though she was convincing him and just the look of the smile of relief on her face when she thinks, shit, thank God I was right. I've not got sucked out into space. But that's just a, such a classy bit of acting, I think, from Elizabeth Slade. And that it's, uh, yeah, she's she's incredible. There's an even better bit of acting than that, you know, Rod. It's the bit where that dinosaur, that ty Tyrannosaurus Rex, wakes up in the hangar and she's got to convince us it's the most terrifying thing she's ever faced. And she's at that door desperately trying to get out and it's that model puppet that she's i mean she, I, I, do you know what when i first watched it i was genuinely anxious for her despite knowing that that was a two-inch puppet that she was running away from so bravo elizabeth sladen so we are definitely keeping invasion of the dinosaurs in um, can two. we um can we put the commentary track in the um in the bin though because it's just Paddy Russell going. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've yeah, spoken to Toby about that. He said it was the most pained professional experience of his life. Yeah, I mean, hats off to Toby Hader because the man, you know, his patience is is just amazing. <laughs> uh, you know, putting up with these one-word answers. And he's, you know, he's working so hard to actually try and make this commentary track as interesting as possible. But she, <laughs> you know, Paddy Russell just will not give an inch. It is excellent. It is. I can't. So, I can't listen to that one, John. No, I, I can't. No. So dinosaur stays in. So James, we're over to you for your choice to either keep or condemn. Well, I find myself in a position I never expected to, which is I'm going to defend Monster of Peladon. What? Because I sense that it's a bit of an underdog, and I reckon. In, I reckon in terms of consistency, objectively, I think it's one of the best in this season. And I think it's got a, an awful lot going for it. Um, I would flag up the way it's paced, which unlike Dinosaurs, the another six-parter, uh, it, it, which sort of keeps aloft by just chucking everything at every episode. I mean, Dinosaurs is never dull because every episode is doing something different, but it, 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 it it's a little bit relentless and it, it's a little bit facing in lots of different directions at once. Curse of Peladon has got a really focused idea and it sustains it for six episodes. It knows when to bring out the Ice Warriors. It doesn't do it at the end of episode one. It does it at the end of episode three. So it ups the ante right at the point where the story needs it. Um, and and it keeps doing new things. It saves an awful lot of uh, things for the final episode. It doesn't feel like a story that resolves too early. It unfolds at a really elegant pace. Um, I think it's nicely directed. I think we have to bear in mind that this is one of the talky ones. It's people in a in a in a series of rooms talking. And given that fact, it's got a really dynamic feel. Actually, it's got an awful lot of movement. It's got a lot of people kind of moving in a very 
exciting way through very very tiny sets and and it doesn't ever feel claustrophobic or uh, unless it unless that's the intention it doesn't feel like these i mean you know the the palace room the throne room must have been a, a tiny set but and and they cram a lot of actors in there but it never feels like it's not as opulent as it's meant to, to feel no scenes in the mines you know they're just caves and and doctor who often doesn't do cave scenes terribly well um you know you need a graham harper to work out how to do that but actually the, the scenes with the miners are, are, are pretty convincing there's a few scenes on film and mm. yeah i know that we get to see terry walsh in a silly wig looking at the camera but actually that is true of every single story in this season at one point or another um most of the action is really kind of way well filmed and i would say that's a bit of a rarity in season 11 um i, I don't think the action is terribly well handled handled usually um it seems to me that by being a little bit more intimate this story gets it right um I'm going to flag up Dudley Simpson again. I think Dudley Simpson really comes into his own in this season. I think it's the point where Dudley Simpson goes, ah, this is what I can do with this size of ensemble. And he writes epic scores. And again, he he matches the scale of this. It's, you know, it, it's epic, but in a different way. It's epic in a sort of Shakespearean way. That's, you know, obviously setting myself up for a fool because I'm aware that it doesn't, it's not, it's not Hamlet. But I sort of feel like it aspires to to have that level of kind of intrigue, and and Simpson gets this, and he manages to 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 write the a score that supports the dialogue really well. He's not just kind of supporting action, but he's 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 world building. Um, and I and I do feel like one of the strengths of Brian Hales's um concept here is that he's building on a world that he's already set up, and he is developing it more. We see an, a, another cast of uh, of people. The 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 myth is that this is kind of doing the minor strike in the way that the curse of peladon did entry to the to the, the single market i i think that's completely wrong i don't think i think this is a sequel to to that concept i think this is still all about the the, the relationship um to the federation um it follows it up in a way that is not only compelling you know we're suddenly seeing the effects on that entry into the federation on ordinary people on working people but it's really prescient um imagine that they're not representing miners but they're representing the fishing community and suddenly we get to see it in a whole new light and we suddenly see actually how it maybe is relevant to things that have happened even in the last few years you know this is obviously decades before the european union as uh, as it uh, is now known was was formed in that way and yet what you have here is a, a small splinter group of people who look look as if they're official um arriving and trying to cast uh doubt on the uh benefits of the federation using smoke and mirrors <clears throat> and you've got the ruling class unable to articulate why the federation is a good thing because they're archaic and fundamentally kind of unable to communicate with the people they represent i feel like we've seen a lot of these things happen in, in recent years Hales really pre predicts an awful lot of you know, what was going to happen down the road and that um is uh, something that I think plays out with you know good characterization we've you know the the the, the queen is a, a weak character I love that Sarah is there to tell her to, to that being a woman you know she she comes from a society where she basically believes she is useless because she is a girl she says it in as many words and Sarah is there to say no that's not a reason and, and we actually see that character go through a massive change through the story and step up to the mark in her role I think we I, I think we see this with a lot of the characters it, it's very easy to kind of 
again, sit back and watch six episodes worth and it's it's all a bit samey and, and we start to feel that they're, they're cardboard cutouts. But they're not. Every character represents a slightly different, um, slightly di- a different response to this situation. I really, really like how when we finally get the reveal of the Ice Warriors, we're still not sure whether they are bad guys or good guys because the previous Peladon story has told us that they can be the good guys. And we have a, a, yeah, sure, they're authoritarian and overreacting, but that could just be, you know, an authority figure overstepping his mark. It's a while before the Doctor works out that they are actually bad guys and they're not representing the Federation at all. So I think this is a story with layers and I would keep it in. Fabulous. Well, I hate to say this, James, because um, as we'll come to in a minute, I was also going to champion it as an underdog, but our very few comments that were received on this from our listeners probably point in a different direction. Um, James H said, should have been four parts, and that's all he's got to say. Dave Rennie says, Peladon is just too long and has to be bottom of the season pole, despite the tremendous Pertwee green coat. And that is a fabulous coat he's wearing in this. Yeah. Lovely Joe Short said, worst is Peladon because it's too long and dull. Michael Donahue says, Peladon is a poor sequel with few good bits. And Darren McKay said, worst favourite, sorry, Monster of Peladon, but you're just so very boring. And that's all we received on it. So, yeah, it was a bit of a damning indictment from the uh, the hamster listeners. James, I think you've put up a, a very valid argument. Um, we've now got to decide whether to agree with you. Let's start with John. John. No, I, I agree. I agree a hundred percent with everything that James said. I, I, I like the monster of Peladon. James said the music is superb. I really like the kind of doomy, um, synthesized howl that you get for the Ice Warriors. Oh, as, as soon as he mentioned the music, I could hear that yeah. scream yep. from the music. Yeah, that really works well. Um, yeah, obviously, obviously, there's a few things that don't quite land. You know, obviously the. Uh, Terry Walsh doubling for John Pertwee. Uh, more to the point, the cliffhanger to part one, where Blaw does this bizarre kind of noise <laughs> like a little baby. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. And notably, they don't have that in the reprise, and I'm not surprised. <laughs> it's the look on his face, isn't it? Oh, shit! <laughs> it's so funny. But I, I like it a lot. I, th- I think it's got an awful lot to recommend it. And I think, by and large, the cast are very good. Um, you've got um, you've got Donald G, you've got uh, um, Alan Bennion, I think, is very good as Skell. He's great. He's really good, yeah. yeah. They're very subtly different to, I want to say, Isnir. Is it Isnir? Yeah, it is. he's very yeah, charming. He's very subtly of yeah, yeah. He's, he's more obviously villainous, but he's, he's a very subtle distinction. But he's still playing the politics, isn't he? He's, he's playing a bureaucrat, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you've got Rex Robinson. Oh, yes, the Badger Wigs are terrible. The Badger Wigs are just... <laughs> what What is all that about? They're a unique look, John. Rex they Robinson does unique. have one of the worst lines in all of Doctor Who, though, doesn't he? What is it? If you can't stand the heat, stay out of the mine... Like, oh, yeah, how, how oh, Rick Terrence managed to keep a straight face. Um, yeah, Ralph Watson is in, uh, he's enjoyably hammy. I mean, but he he really does go quite over the top, doesn't he? Well, he just he suddenly goes psychotic somewhere between episodes two and three. Yeah, he's sort of quite calm at the beginning, you know, and then he goes completely mad. 
<laughs> yeah, I quite admire that, but I admire doing that in a badger wig. Like those badger wigs, <laughs> those badger wigs would have been embarrassing if the people wearing them had looked embarrassed. But they don't. They they own the badger wigs. I mean, I don't find that as embarrassing to watch as as they might have been as and as uh, as embarrassing as some costume decisions um in in doctor who because because they all believe in those parts They're playing like they are burly miners and you just sort of buy into the world i think so burly miners i've got to move to joe and ask him his thoughts on monster of peladon that's a I perfect segue no for you, thoughts on it whatsoever thank you <laughs> um i i can't believe i'm gonna say this but I, you people are so compelling in your arguments and I'm seeing what you're seeing, and I've never really liked this. Actually, the more I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about like individual scenes that I love in this story. I love the end of the cliffhanger where Sarah opens the door and that ice warrior comes lurching out. I think that's an amazing cliffhanger. I love the bit where Sarah finds the doctor after the alarm, you know, that crazy gay alarm's been going off all the... <laughs> rainbow lights <laughs> and she thinks he's dead doesn't she and the way she plays it like she touches him and he comes alive and she's like oh it's so brilliantly acted and oh best of all super camp villain eckersley donald g back from his meteoric success in the space pirates <laughs> apparently by all accounts um someone said to him on a commentary you know the doctors only ever leave because you're in a story they leave immediately in the next one the actors but no no he has a wonderful moment in episode six when he's finally revealed i mean he's in black leather we sort of knew and he's got the queen he's dragging her through all the tunnels and she goes there's all these bodies everywhere she goes look at what you've done and he just goes never mind and just drags her <laughs> off again oh he's amazing um it's too long i think this is too long uh and i don't think it's as atmospheric as curse of peladon i don't know if there's a different lighting designer i think the mine really comes alive when it's on film but it does look like a studio when it's on video but no, i'm gonna keep it in i think it's really fun oh, and goodness. on fashion alone Hurtwee's coat. It's the best coat he ever had. Well, my vote's superfluous then, but I'm also <laughs> going to keep it in. Um, Bloody hell, everything's going through. Well, uh, reasons are a couple of reasons I like it. It's actually a proper sequel, and I don't think up to this stage we've had a proper sequel. We've had villains returning. Um, we've had lots of villains returning, and people say, oh, Dalek Invasion Earth is a sequel to the Daleks. Well, no, it's not really. It's just the same adversaries come back again. It's not actually, we're not about, seeing the same the web setting, of fear? the same characters. Oh, sorry. The, what about the Web of Fear? Professor Travis. Well, no, the Great Intelligence, the Yetis. Yeah, mm, maybe. But... Sorry, there's always some annoying arsehole pointing things out when you say things, <laughs> isn't it? But they're in different settings, Tibet and London Underground, whereas That's here fair. we've actually got a return to the same planet. So Doctor Who is often, I mean, one of the cliches is he's the cowboy that rides into town, puts things right and then leaves again, and we never see the consequences. Now, we're not necessarily seeing the consequences here, but we are seeing him returning to the same, not necessarily the same time, it's 50 years later, isn't it, but the same place. And we've got Agador there still. We've still got Ice Warriors. We've got, of course, the Glorious. How can nobody have mentioned Alpha Centauri? Alpha Centauri. Oh, good grief. I mean, she, he, it is just glorious. Um, so, really yeah, I... expressive. That struck me watching it 
the the way that head mo- moves around and the, the 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 performance is really good. Yeah, it is. I, I've I not mean... heard any gay MPs that sound like that though. If I'm <laughs> honest, that's apparently what you said. Churchman was asked to play. Play it like a gay MP. <laughs> she does a damn good job. I, I mean, <coughs> yeah, Alpha Centauri is a is a hero. Um, and the only thing I will say, James, on the on the point you were making, kind of about the political relevance. I was growing up in this power. Okay, I was only seven, eight at the time, but I was very aware that there was a lot of unrest out there. There was um, political upset. We had three-day working weeks um, in the 72, 73. And the only reason I was very aware of those because I was always absolutely petrified that Doctor Who might go off if there was a power <laughs> strike on a Saturday. Thank God it never happened. I know it did for others. So I was very acutely aware that there were kind of three-day strikes. And I think this, this does kind of play into that, okay, we've got minors, but we had so much civil unrest in those days. I think it does it does trade on what people were seeing in the country as a whole. And I think it does reflect that quite well. So that's another reason I'd keep it in. But yeah, I agree. I think it's a it's a goodie. Don't you think that's wonderful that the whole country is in like a period of civil unrest, and the greatest danger might be that Doctor Who is not on Saturday. Always. How Always. old were you then? Uh, seven, eight. Oh, fair enough. I was absolutely terrified Doctor Who wouldn't be on. Honestly, uh, fair yeah. enough if you just said twenty-one. So yeah, <laughs> probably, yeah, probably was that too. Yeah. So yeah, let's keep it in. I never thought that was going through in a million years. Well done, James. So, Joe, it's down to you and I. Do you want to go next? No, go on, you go next. I went first last time. I'm going to go for then Plunge the Spiders, and I'm going to keep in. I think we're getting into ones now where it's quite hard when I was thinking about them. I thought, I'm going to champion all of these, and as I've watched them and thought about them again, I was a bit... I certainly wasn't going towards no, but I was a little bit on the fence with a couple of these. And of the three, I think Plants of Spiders is probably the best of the three, but it still does have quite a few problems with it. So the reasons, first of all, why I would put it in is because I think it's it's pretty much the epitome of the Let's Dick it, Let's Dick's era. I think we've got pretty much everything in one story, everything that they did really well. I mean, it's really telling that Barry Letts directed, wrote, and produced this. The only time in Doctor Who history that one person has taken all the lead roles in a show. And this is pretty much the summary. And episode one certainly is the kind of is a is a perfect summation of, of this era. We've got um we trade on things that are in the zeitgeist at the time. So there's talk about ESP, which was very much a topic of debate at the time. And tomorrow, people on ITV were treading a, a similar path. We've got the meditation and self-help center, which again is feeding into that kind of thinking that was going on coming out of flower power from the 60s into the 70s. It was very much about meditation and Buddhism, obviously a major part of that. We've got the slow build-up to the big reveal at the end of episode one. You think something's going to um, transmit through on the on the uh, carpet early on and it doesn't but then by the reveal we get the great spider which surprise surprise is in the title so i think we knew that was coming um we've got you know danger in ordinary places we've got tractors suddenly appearing on on country lanes um the great character beats in the first episode i absolutely love the scene at the cabaret with the doctor and the brigadier the way the brigadier <laughs> absolutely perks up when the exotic dancer comes on and the way Pertwee looks at him he oh gives goodness. him a knowing eye you he certainly get, does he? <laughs> yeah, of he plays that so well my god he really sits up and t- I'm, i was waiting for him to get a pair of glass out and polish them i mean it was uh yeah he was, he was definitely interested in that part. And then again, we get Professor Clegg when he 
um, takes the watch and gets visions of uh, of Doris. And Corny again plays that beautifully. I don't think he's that kind of buffoon that we got a little bit in season ten. I think he's still a rounded character, but it's a, a lovely comedy beat for him. We've got Pertwee, he's in complete control of this story. Um, there's lots of continuity. We see clips of Carnival of the Monsters. Uh, we got obviously all the references to Joe and Metabilis, not Metabolis, three. Um, <laughs> so I think we've pretty much got everything. We've got foreshadowing what's going to happen because Choji talks about the old man that dies. All of that's just in episode one. And I think it really kind of encapsulates everything of the era. It does go a little bit downhill after that, and again, probably reflects things in the era. So we get some terrible CSO coming up. We get, as people have already mentioned, Terry Walsh in a terrible wig and seeing his face umpteen times getting thrown around the studio floor. Uh, we get some appalling acting and <laughs> Jenny Laird, step forward, please. I Rod, mean... my husband, why, why? Oh, so <laughs> just awful. Awful. No, I mean, it, it's just it's... like... Ooh, I shan't let you defend you. this. I shan't. I shan't. Why oh why oh why? It's just, it's terrible, isn't it? Also, oh, why is Terry why is Terry Walsh why, doing why, that? Terry Walsh that. turns up in that wig to do stuff that Pertwee could have done himself. He just sort of yeah, it's not very it's not very dynamic. He just it's, it's, it's almost like Pertwee goes, Well, <laughs> they're shooting me from behind, so Terry can take this one. I'm gonna I'm off for a cup of tea. <laughs> I'm off for a fag, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, OK, we get some crappy bits, but then it comes back again. And I think, again, we get some great bits. So um, growing up around lots of people who didn't like Doctor Who, they remembered some of the John Pertwee ones. They really stuck out. So everyone said, oh, I remember the one with the maggots. Oh, I remember the ones where the monsters came out of the sea. And this one was, oh, I remember the one with the big spiders jumping on people's backs. So had really memorable visuals. And I think that was that's a key to this. And again, that's a real you know stock in trade for Barry Letts and Terence Dix. Um, so yeah, I think it, it sums up lots of what we know of that era and reflects it back, but then does some new stuff too. So my second reason for liking it is the characters. And what I really like about uh, Plant Spiders, this is the regeneration story. This is the big climax of five years of John Pertwee. You know, he's the biggest doctor. He's in all the media constantly. And who are our main protagonists? They're a group of fairly seedy, run-down, middle-aged businessmen. I mean, it's it's not, it's not such a juxtaposition. You are not expecting those to be your big bad. I don't think we see a similar group in, in any who, actually. They're just quite real and just a little bit seedy and a little bit dirty and greasy and oily. They're pathetic, aren't they? They're very pathetic, yeah. Um, I mean, he's a, what is he? Lupton's a, a failed sales director, and he's just greasy and seedy, isn't he? He's, he's like Leonard Roster from Rising Damp. But he's got an anger to him as well. Oh, That's has, a bit absolutely. sinister. Yeah, yeah. He's he's worrying. Um, we also get Tommy. Um, and Tommy doesn't get talked about enough. So again, sorry, sorry to hark back to childhood, but um I went to a normal state primary school and we had um a girl in our class who had learning disabilities. <clears throat> Obviously, it wasn't called learning disabilities in those days, but including a character like Tommy in a regular show, not making a big fuss about the fact that he's got learning disabilities at all. He's just there. I think that's a fantastic way for children just to kind of accept, um, you know, we're all different and there are people with differences out there and it's part of life's rich tapestry. Um, I feel slightly uncomfortable with the kind of magic resolution to his learning disabilities with the crystal later on. Although the line when he said something like, you know, who wants to be normal? I thought that was, that was lovely. But it's a, it's a little uncomfortably that he's magically made better. Um, 
I suppose do we need to mention the kind of uncomfortableness about Ko uh, Choji as well and Campo um, being Tibetan, being played by English actors. There's a bit of, it's unusual that some stories get real kicking for uh, for racial misappropriation. This one doesn't, and it kind of teeters on the edge of that, but let's not get too drawn into that. So I think the characters are my second reason. And the third reason is the regeneration. It's, you know, this is the first time we actually call it a regeneration. Um, it's just huge for the show. I mean, John Pertwee was, Doctor Who was everywhere. It was headline news. It was in, my sister was three years older than me. It was in her teenage magazines um, with Sarah Jane Smith and Elizabeth Slade and what she was wearing. <clears throat> So the regeneration was really, really big. Um, and it's just different. He he regenerates because of his greed of knowledge. So it's 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 different the way it's done. And and seeing John Pertwee really showing fear in episode five of The Great One, I think really leads into that fact that we, this is something momentous. And so, yeah, that I think is, it's not a big flushy regeneration. It's very subtle, very quick, but I think it does the job. So yeah, regeneration characters and the epitome of an era are the reasons I'm going to keep it in. It's a death, isn't it? It's actually yeah, the Doctor absolutely. dying for absolutely. once, rather than some something madly operatic happening. You actually just experience him expire. Yes, and we feel it too. Hmm. Comments? Yeah. I, I think it's. I think it's oh, probably the the only re, one of the few regenerations that still brings a tear to my eye, or rather the build up to it. When he says, you know, how he has to face his fear. And, and you know, when Sarah says, you know, please don't die. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'll cry at anything these days, but that one. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a killer. The regeneration, the whole scene has a quite a stillness, a quietness, mm. which I think is so effective. And I, I, I agree with everything you said, Rod. You, you've flagged up a lot of positives. You have omitted quite a lot in the end of episode <laughs> yeah. one to the regeneration scene and where i think planet of the spiders really falls down is in quite a lot of the stuff that happens in between and however good episode one is they've got to fill another five episodes with this stuff and what they end up filling it with you know eventually is a lot of people in stock costumes against a really bad CSO backdrop doing West Country accents. We're all farmers, you know. <laughs> we are all farmers. We're, larger we're, we're, and larger. we're being very oppressed by these by <laughs> these eight legs. Gareth Hunt in a in a, a gay moustache doing a West Country accent. <laughs> Who'd have thought that two years later he'd be uh, the poster boy for the new Avengers? Ralph Arliss though, James. Uh, actually, yeah no okay yeah 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 he's 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 having to do an awful lot of uh, the work on his own though isn't he oh i wasn't talking about his acting no what were you talking about oh he's just very handsome he's very he is handsome. he's very pretty yeah. isn't he and he's and unlike many of the uh the two legs he can grow his own beard <laughs> <laughs> the beard stocks were in yeah, they were using quite a lot of them there. I think the only Doctor Who story that uses them more is State of Decay. Well, we're doing season 18 next. Oh, so we are. Right? You want beards. <laughs> You're full of beards in that. <laughs> I was watching this with, with that thought in mind of it being the kind of last hurrah for Let's and Dicks. And I'll even, you know, I'll even give the chase scene a pass. It's, it's a, it's pretty drawn out and... It's it's not the most dynamic ever, but let him have it. His vehicles, let 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 him have his comedy policeman. I even so, I 
I'm afraid my conclusion was that the last hurrah for Let's and Dicks is not Planet of the Spiders, it's Robot, where they actually revisit a lot of kind of their stock things, you know, a lot of imagery from Spearhead from Space, and it's much pacier, much punchier, and, and I think better written. I think Planet of the Spiders has a gaping hole in the middle, and it's parts three to five and most of part six in fact most of part six is part five anyway because they obviously <laughs> run out of material and just have to repeat a load of part five um so uh, it I, I although you've put up a spirited defense i i don't think i can keep this one in joe i really love planet of the spiders for a lot of the reasons that you've said I'm going to say something that might sound a bit heinous, but I don't think Barry Letts is the strongest director. And I think he should have handed this to somebody else. I'm not sure he can pace very well. I think probably his best direction ever is his first, his Enemy of the World. And I think he directs really well in Inferno because he's got a solid camera script by Douglas Canfield that's already prepared. But after that, and I love Carnival of Monsters. I think it's a really fun story. But he's really experimental, and I really love the fact that he pushes technology along. But in order to push technology along, you make some stumbles along the way. And Planet of the Spiders shows so many of those. The bit where Sarah appears on Metabelia's Free, with all that dreadful fringing. It's just, you can't watch this with your family, can you? Under any circumstances. <laughs> and, like, I think episode four, where they're in the weird cocoons like none of that's needed and they're sort of in and out a lot there's a lot of chasing around going on you've got the the farm boys coming in to rescue them no they're actually evil it's all those doctor who tropes you i think you're right one is a brilliant setup and it sort of exemplifies the best of the era and i think six bows out the era in a really surprisingly thoughtful and moving way but I also think James is right. Everything that comes in between, including the chase, which I don't mind watching because it's fun and it's pacey and it's got chubby oats being campus hell. And like there's 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 lots happening in it. It's really indulgent. And I just really like indulgent. It could Let's be just a... stop and have a chat in the middle of this chase scene. <laughs> it could we've be got a... to keep it going for a bit longer. Solid four parter, I think. I think it could be an excellent four parter, but it is a pretty dreary six parter. So despite loving a lot of it, I'm voting it out. Well, okay, so Spiders is going to be the first one that falls. We didn't do the comments, actually, Joe. Do you want to do them now and I can edit them in? Let's do it now. Let's just do them now, <laughs> Let's just do them now okay. anyway. Let's keep things fresh. Michael Donahue said, Spiders is good, but too long. Oh, yeah, I think we've touched on that. It's a pity the planet was studio-bound, although I like the idea of something finally scaring Pertwee and his arrogance and pride being his undoing. And unlike others, I like how simple the regeneration is. Gareth Bowley says, a great romp of a story with a brilliant chase sequence. I've got a feeling they're all going to love it, you know. Well, there are very few, actually. It's surprising compared to, like, dinosaurs. Anthony Williams said everything John did was superb. Oceans of tears when he died at the end of Plants of Spiders. And Eric White says Spiders should have been a four-partner. I think he means parter. Parter, yeah. Spiders should have been a four-parter. The edited version on the DVD is excellent. I've never seen that. No, I can't say I have. It's jarring. It's very jarring. I, I think mean, when, you're, when you're used to watching something, yeah, bits are taken out. Yeah, I'm the instantly starts with the, um, the um, a close-up of the other Matt 
Mandala. Is it the Mandala? That mantra. That they yeah. Have mandala so mantra. Yeah. By the thing. Um, can I just? Can I just say I'll I'll, I'll keep it in because I quite like Planet of the Spiders. Go for it. Come on, where's your defence? I thought we'd done this already, but off you go. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I I think the padding is the padding bit is valid because you know it's it's just you know like the cocoon bit. I mean, it's it's just you know really bad pun you know puns being thrown at each other. You know, sort of went to steward time lord or roaster time lord. Um, Some of the CSO is dodgy, but I do like. Barry Lips's ambition, like that strange bit in, early in part three when Luxon kind of has that mental link with the spiders and there's like this this gurning disembodied head ends up in the in the spider courtroom. It's just sort of uh, you know, sort of going. They filmed stuff. it from two angles and they're yeah, framed in between yeah, two angles did, so it so his face doesn't quite line up. Yeah. The problem is the effects have been so dodgy up to that point. You sit mm. there wondering if it's just an accident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's the evil queen from Snow White. It's the same effect, isn't it? It is, it? yeah. The sort of the revolving, revolving head, yeah. And he he does he does tend to roll his eyes a bit, you know. The crystal. <laughs> Every time he says the crystal, is always the crystal. I love a hammy villain. He he is quite hammy, but I quite like the fact that he's you know he's such a loser. You know the only you know his only motivation is to. Get back at his old, you know, the uh, the takeover boys who kicked him out of his old job, um, and he's, you know, he's, he's so deluded with madness, you know. Who do you think John um, Durth? Is it John Durth or John Darth? It is John Durth. 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 John Durth. I think he's brilliant. Yeah. I think he's really yeah. good in this. And 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 that that he looks tragic, doesn't he? He mm. looks like yeah. a businessman who's had just had a, a bit of bad like luck. Ten sizes too big for him, you know. He's practically just sort of wasting away in that. Even the fact that when he's delivering his backstory, the camera cuts away from him and shows us something else going on. It's like even the, the director's yeah, not that director, interested in his well, story. Like, I can't be bothered with this. But did you notice as well, he's sort of washing his hands and his face in a really sort of aggressive yeah, way. Yeah. There's yeah, something, yeah. Yeah. something about I'm kind it of scary. Yeah, I'm waiting for him to turn up on 24 hours in police custody because he's <laughs> he does definitely something. He's a bit of a wrong one, isn't he? He'd, he'd be on Twitter 24 hours a day, constantly getting at everyone, wouldn't he? You know, sort of, uh, Twitter is tailor-made for Luxon. In block capitals, yeah. In block capitals, yes. Um, he won't say who he reminds us of. <laughs> <laughs> but from everyone's laughter, we can assume they all know. Yeah. Oh, dear, so I can't laugh. I've got a really bad sore throat. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I, lo- I like the chase sequence as well. I really like that. And also the bit that Rob mentioned with the um when Pertwee's forced to march like a marionette on the spot. And you can actually see his eye. He's like got a tear in his eye, I think. You know, this sort of real kind of, you know, this usually rock solid confidence to the point of arrogance doctor is being made to feel, you know, just, you know, like a little puppet. You know, yeah, I remember that as I remember that as a child. That really kind of struck me because mm. I was used to this very um, patriarchal figure that was never scared of anything, and mm. you know, uh, held all his companions under the cape and all the rest of the cliches. But he was such—he was always in control and always in power, yeah. and that was. I mean, quite, the only other time shocking, scared of thing is mind of evil, isn't it? When he's yeah. fighting off the flames and the uh, you know past monsters and all that there's a little bit of gurning there that kind of kills yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whereas here it feels more genuine 
Yeah, his line when he says when he's fight you know utterly beaten and he says the TARDIS brought me home that's so moving isn't it yeah Yeah. although John that chase you were talking about there I've never known a chase sequence in any movie or TV where it's like past the baton from one vehicle (laughs) to another just like this is you know right and they're all waiting hovercraft helicopter let's go (laughs) (laughs) just waiting for the next bit isn't it you know there's a bit where Stuart Fell, I believe, had a hovercraft r- ridden over him, and they <laughs> they filmed this stunt. They've cut it to look like it's a trick shot. There's yeah. the one moment where they actually need to hold hold the the, mm. the shot, and they cut away at the point where they could have replaced him with a dummy. So and yeah. his reaction is so dickhead. The comedy isn't just it's isn't just there, just is it? Just, no. Yeah, it's not a very funny <laughs> comic moment. No. Chubby Oates going, oh, I'm going over for a lie down. I've had enough, you know. I'm like, yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm going to bed. <laughs> I thought it was Shane Ritchie the first time I saw that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was Shane Ritchie. But, it is uh, too early, you know. I think. Yeah, probably, yeah. But then I, I can't see a thing. You know. <laughs> so Spiders is out. We've got three more comments on Spiders. Uh, Darren thought it's action-packed. He said seeing the third Doctor in full James Bond mode, giving chase by road, air and water is awesome. Oh, well, then what do I know? Well done, Darren. Joe Llewellyn says, quite good. Doesn't really drag. Interesting character bits with all the running around. And Zones of Thought. It's very very intriguing. Said Spider still slaps. Have a mandala and mantra and who needs a vortex manipulator? Okay, so Spiders is the first to fall by the wayside. Joe, you have got Time Warrior and Death to the Daleks left. Which would what? you like to pick? I truly cannot believe that the Time Warrior is going to be the last story talked about in this episode. You're going for death? I would like to champion Death to the Daleks, please. Which I first watched when I was seven years old. So I'm watching this through seven year, uh, seven-year-old's eyes. Uh, and I'm still seven years old when I'm watching it now. I think it has a brilliant first episode. Truly atmospheric first episode with great direction from Michael Bryan in the studio with the lights down and tons of dry ice pumped in and on location. I think it's a very convincingly realized world and you really feel the sort of oppressive atmosphere of it when the doctor and Sarah are walking around. There's a great sequence where Sarah is running through the mist, runs into the TARDIS and she's like, Oh, thank God I'm safe. And she's turning the old crank handle thinking, okay, I'm going to shut the doors. And then you realize that bloody Exelon's in there with her and grabs her foot. And it's it's genuinely tense and horrific. I know Robert Holmes had input in this story. And this I think this was the first story he had real input into. And you can feel that sort of gothic horror starting to creep in. Although I think gothic is an overused term. But you can feel the horror seeping into to the story. Um, and, I th- and, you know, it leads up to a Dalek cliffhanger. What more do you want? Fabulous. And the idea of, of the TARDIS losing all of its power, Terry Nation ain't big on ideas, but they're fun ideas, you know? And the TARDIS being stranded on that planet with no way off, I think it's great. Oh, and, sorry, I'm just going to list everything I love about this story. The City of the Exelons, when I was seven years old, you was never going to see a better special effect than that with Sarah walking towards it and the beacon going off, fabulous cigarette in the distance. Oh, my God, it's amazing. My second reason to champion Deaths of the Daleks is devious Daleks. Yes, take away their weapons and have them be really devious, although not perhaps as smart as they could be, because when they're coming up with their evil plan, 
the doctor and co are about two foot over there where they're all going, well, let's all pretend, you know, we're going to help them out. And even when we get their weapons back, we're still going to help them out. And then they basically turn around and they're literally there right next to them going, all right, doctor, we're on your side. No, no, it's really refreshing for Terranation to do something different with the Daleks. And I like them using their brains rather than their guns. Um, However, when they do get their guns back, they're given fabulous machine guns. And there's one sequence where they blast down a bunch of Exelons for no reason at all, apart from the fact that they're absolute bastards, which I love. Um, I think the Daleks are really great in this. Um, They're even like, even when they've got all the perineum at the end, they're like, well, we don't need to blow up the planet, but we're going to blow it up anyway, because we don't like none of you. They're wonderful. I think the Daleks are great in this. Um, There's a sequence where the Doctor says goodbye to Sarah in this. And it's one of the most intimate scenes you're going to see between a Doctor and a companion in the classic series. He cups her face. He talks to her very gently. She tries to resist. And there's just an unspoken intimacy between the two of them that I really love. Now, I've heard a reading from Lucy McCall. who She doesn't like that a bit at all. She thinks the Doctor's a bit too familiar with her. I think it's really very touching. And it shows how their relationship is deepening as the season goes on. And they get more and more moments like that. And the last reason I want to champion this is because... And you're probably all going to hate this as adults. But as a kid, all of those fabulous... What? You're not going to say the music. Please, for the love of God, don't say the music. Oh, no, that's another reason I love this. I'll come to that after this one then it's those fabulous dangers in the city of the Exelons, which plays out like you know doctor who's version of the crystal maze as you go from one room to the other the, the maze of death the evil light bulbs that drive you crazy <laughs> oh i love that oh you know, those, those video the, effects the school disco of death you do not exist that exists oh it's fabulous <laughs> um you know the the ikea flooring of death when you're seven years old, all of these dangers. Oh, look at James. He looks very perturbed right now. Um, <laughs> I think James is giving away a little bit. You've got to remember, expression. I watched the VHS of this, so I wasn't aware it was a cliffhanger until I was. You can't older. bring up the IKEA flooring of death as a as a good point and not expect me to make a face. I it's... was I was seven. I was That's seven. No the Daleks go across. There's electric beams everywhere. I sometimes think we lose, we forget what it's like to watch Doctor Who as a little kid. And as a little kid, that was just incredible. It was weird. It was weird. It was weird, deadly floor. <laughs> you know, I just loved it. Um, and then just the idea that you could give the city a nervous breakdown, you know, by undoing a few bits and pieces. I, I just loved it. The, the doors coming up and down and them trying to get out. I genuinely thought they weren't going to make it. I can see as an adult why this is a very trying Doctor Who story full of cliches and stereotypes and, you know, that dreadful, what's her name? Jill Tarrant. <gasps> Here she what comes! You know, <laughs> awful. Um, I mean, One of Terry a... Nation's many Tarrants. <laughs> what is it with the name Tarrant? I still don't understand it. But She's as a Tarrant too far. As a child, this was the most excitement I could possibly have. I wore that video out. Um, I love it. I still love it now. It takes me back to being young, and that's why I'm keeping it in. Fantastic. Should we see what the comments say, Joe? <laughs> David I'm Gillespie scared. Pr- yeah, I'm scared. They're, they're a mixed bag. Let's say mixed bag. 
David Gillespie Pratt said, what a beige half-hour story. There's a real feeling of it'll do on so many fronts, especially in Terry Nation's unremarkable script. Daleks without the power to kill should have been much more interesting. Not sad for him. Michael Storm says, the best for me is without doubt. It may... It, I'll start again. Michael Storm says, the best for me is without doubt. It may take story beats from Colony in Space and spike them up, spice them up with games from the annuals, but it is great fun. The Daleks briefly get to be cunning again, since the odds are against them. Jim Allenby <laughs> said it might not be everyone's favourite. Same as you here, Joe, but I saw this as a kid on VHS, and it's always a go-to comfort story. Even the slightly dodgy music. And the silver and black Dalek, Daleks look magnificent. Melvin Pena says, Arnold Yarrow. Oh, I didn't even mention Belau. Arnold wow. Yarrow as Belau is charming and adorable guide to the Exelon City. And Pertwee's closing pronouncement about how there are only 699 wonders left in the universe is a wonderfully bleak antecedent or antitype to Davison's There Should Have Been Another Way from Warriors of the Deep. Man, the reasons are stacking up here, folks. Well, don't get too excited. Jeff Richardson said, This is the worst because I can't be asked to care about shooting and yelling and space peril. I may ask suggest he's watching the wrong television show then. <laughs> Ailing Phillips says, Belal is great. Taylor Edwards said, I love the concept, but it feels like everyone from Terry Nation to John Pertwee is just going through the motions. Darren McKay says, it's like a comfy blanket for me, and that Dalek design has yet to be bettered. Oh, yes. Ryan McGiven said, simple, fun, if daft story, great soundtrack. What? Uh, and an atmospheric feel, through, uh, though the part three cliffhanger is pretty dumb. Gareth Bowley finally says, feels so ploddy, the music really doesn't help its pace. I think we've got to go to James, because James just looks like he's lost the will to live with this story. He looks so. apoplectic. I I, and I, I did enjoy it. Um, and I'm, I'm totally with Joe about seeing things as a, as a seven-year-old. I, I mean, I think Doctor Who should appeal to seven-year-olds and, and and this really would have done and it's got an awful lot going for it, it, it just from a purely kind of visual perspective that the, the film scene sequences are great and they've got daleks bursting into flames and toppling off cliffs into into muddy lakes you know it's it's full of stuff that i absolutely would have loved as a kid i suppose i would question whether this approach where the Daleks are, they're devious, but they're devious in a kind of um, Doctor Who annual 1966 way. Whether that really works with this era of Doctor Who and with the quite mature relationship that has been set up between, uh, actually between John Pertwee and and, uh, and the series, but but particularly John Pertwee and uh, Elizabeth Sladen. And following on, from, I mean, I, I agree that first episode with the, the dimly lit TARDIS mm. and that that existential horror of you know the TARDIS is their only way out and and there's no you you feel her despite this is her one trip and and this is where Sarah being a, a passenger rather than a companion is so powerful because it's like it's her first trip into space and you you can sense her dismay it's like is this it that's why I think uh his farewell to her is so moving it's almost like he's an apology sorry I was meant to take you to an amazing place and <laughs> look where we've ended up You've I got agree with the all Daleks. that <laughs> Seven-year-old me would have seen that wrinkled flooring and gone, couldn't they at least have made it 
straight. Couldn't they have You couldn't it? have been cynical at seven, surely. No, but I think I was critical at seven. I think that I, I think like many Doctor Who fans, I was a bit troubled by anything that took me out of the reality. And as a Doctor Who fan, I was pretty upset. <laughs> you know, I, I certainly never watched Doctor Who for the special effects. I was willing to suspend disbelief which is why I was so troubled when something just appeared to be a bit sloppy. And that is so clearly a studio set where they haven't really bothered to set it up properly. And I think it's full of things like that. Um, and the, and the whole thing, the whole direction, you know, the Daleks going away and having a conversation, a loud conversation <laughs> just next to the doctor, it feels so lazy. Surely someone could have just turned the camera a bit further. So it wasn't so obvious. Like one of those Daleks, yeah, and hasn't got an operator in it, and no one's even sort of getting no, at it with a I'm, stick or anything. One is completely stationary. I'm fascinated by this. You know, the Daleks, which move so beautifully in the in the in the Hartnell stories, did they just not pass this information on? You know, where where were the Dalek operators going on? Oh, this is how we do this, and we need to keep this moving to give. You know, the, the, even from Planet of the Daleks to to Death of the Daleks, there's a drop in kind of the quality of Dalek operating, and they bump into stuff, and they don't flash their lights properly. It, it, the whole thing is this slight air of no one quite cares enough to make it really good, and that troubles me. Um, I have written. I wrote down when I was watching it. It's this Terry Nation's most by numbers script. It's sort of if you had Terry Nation bingo, you, this would be a winning story because it's got everything. It's got yeah. a series of tests. It's got a space virus. It's got a Tarrant. It's even like there's a point where Galloway is told you're you're not fit to be leader, and I'm like what? Where did that come from? We've had no sign that Galloway is a, a tall a character who shouldn't be entrusted with leadership. And when he does his self-sacrifice, it's almost on his face. Like, well, I've got to sacrifice myself because I've been set up as a bad one. So, uh, yeah, this is me half-heartedly oh, sacrificing myself. Well, you think he's myself. a great character, Galloway? I, I, I disagree because I don't think there's anything in the writing. I think all of the characters are... are absolutely kind of two-dimensional the bit uh, the bit where um commander Routon dies and he and he says you know you're all gonna be in command and then he goes oh i'm sorry sir i couldn't quite hear you after it's he a good, it's a good line but it feels like a line that he's reused from something else i just I, there's nothing that sets <laughs> him up as that character if i'm honest <laughs> finally harry blighton right he's a really interesting composer Kerry blighton's had this thing where he felt that the music he wrote had to somehow match the the concept of the story which is an interesting idea so in Doctor Who and the Silurians he thought well they're ancient creatures from beneath the ground I need to find an, uh, an, an ancient instrument to represent them which is why he uses a shawm which I have to say I, I think that's quite an effective score it's a weird score but then what score from that era of so who is not discordant it's, it? it's really I, I, I think it, it I think it works in an odd way this one is him going well the daleks are fed through a ring modulator so i need to feed my clarinet through a ring mod modulator and that will <laughs> make it sound like dalek music and i think it's i just think it's wrong-headed um i totally understand that if you've grown up with it and there's a nostalgia factor 
that it's going to work that for you was in a way basically that my only card james that was my only card <laughs> to defend you only the story. have joe was grasping at that point you only have to compare it to the music that uh, dudley simpson writes a year later for genesis of the daleks to see what real menacing dalek music really sounds like and Kerry Blyton doesn't come close and it's not even like I don't think he wants to come close I think he's trying to do something conceptual and I'm not saying there's not some uh, quality to his music I just feel like he'd be better placed working with Ken Russell on a, a documentary or something what about the Welsh choir you know okay I do quite I, I quite like that music but uh, um I was I was slightly unnerved because I watched uh, Topsy Turvy recently, and the head priest talks in the same voice as Jim Broadbent <laughs> doing um, uh, W.S. Gilbert. So, uh, no, I think that I think that choir music actually works quite effectively. Um, it, it, it again, it comes from that slightly horror inflected part of the story, which ultimately doesn't really deliver because they just sort of run away from them. And it's the adventure game by the end. It is, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I, I I agree about the the weird room. You know, there's there's some real weirdness there. But then there are the two figures where they haven't really bothered to come up with a costume, so they've just sort of wrapped them in toilet roll and they have to do it. You know, do you know what I mean? Like everything, there were great ideas peppered amongst the, the episodes, but I but I feel like ultimately the there's there's not the will to realize that Terry Nation is for someone who early on in Doctor Who was sort of entrusted as a, reli a reliable pair of hands who, who would turn up the, the goods. There are so many Terry Nation scripts where I think, how, how did you think they were going to do all of this? And respected so producers going, yeah, we'll make this. Yeah. We'll throw some money at this. So I'm taking it's a no, James. For it's a no for me. <laughs> if you said yes after all that, oh, no. I would have been very surprised. <laughs> I've got John. to hear what John's got to say. Well, it's 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 another yes from me. I mean, I, I I love it. I love all the you know, like you said, Doctor Who's designed to be, you know, enjoyed as a kid, and um, you know, it's got horror movie overtones. It's got like you know all these tests that they've got to go through. And that is exactly the sort of thing that I look for in Doctor Who. Yeah, some of the characters are a bit uh, a bit lackluster. You know, I mean, Galloway, like you said, is just a bit of a He's a bit one-dimensional, you know. He's, you know, always going on about his, you know, his eagles. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, do the Exelons come up with extra chocolate on their biscuits or something? I don't, <laughs> know, I don't care. Um, yeah, Jill Tarrant, um, other bloke who's got the personality of a hula hoop, um, the other commander guy. None You're not of talking about John, the great John Abenary, are you? Oh, he's wonderful. No, I've no, got something no, to say about um, John Abenary no, in a minute. No, John Abenary is actually excellent. And it's a shame that he's used as target practice so early on in part two. He, he is wasted, isn't he? There's no, there's, yeah, yeah. I don't he's, know what they've got. There. I was very disturbed as a child how he seemed to die in a mess of mash and peas. Did you see it all over the place in the spaceship when they kidnap him? No, just me? Okay. <laughs> it's all over the floor. <laughs> Sorry, John, continue. Oh, right, no. Sorry, I'm with you now, yes. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe the Exelons had a, you know, like a, you know, maybe they were really hungry or something. <laughs> uh, they were looking for something better than, you know, instant mash and, you know, stale peas, I don't know. Our fat best, peas, best yeah. Peas, um, so, yeah, there, there's that, and, um, yeah, the music doesn't really work. Having said that, there are quite there are some quite nice cues 
in part one. Um, and I like the way that there's absolutely no music for the first 10 minutes because of, you know, the power's gone. And all of a sudden, the TARDIS doesn't feel like a place of safety anymore. It actually feels dangerous. You know, you've got the Exxon actually invading and, um, you know, you see it from the, um, the Exxon's point of view, which is one thing that Michael Lee Bryant is very good at. And he'd do much better, even better, in Robots of Death. You know, it's it's quite kind of voyeuristic the way you see it from you know the baddie's point of view and the way it taps out, and he, of course he do that again in Robots of Death, and it's even more kind of graphic. Um, do you know and... why he did it that way? Hmm? Do you know why he did it that way? No. He said he just didn't have enough set to shoot in, so he had to shoot it oh, from right. the X-Men's oh, point of view <laughs> to go at Sarah Jane. Needs must, yeah. Well, that's well, whatever reason, but it works. Yeah, it choice. works. Yeah, yeah. And also, he's really good with video effects. The bit where, you know, when he says, you know, you do not exist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, re- I really like the video distortion for that, which they nicked on the top of the box. Um, there's, there's something, you know, that's one thing I really like about 1970s Doctor Who is all those weird kind of video effects that they include. Um, so I, I think there's an awful lot to recommend it. Oh, yeah, and the, um, the screams at the end when the, the city melts. That's, that's quite just jarring, I think. Very strange. I used to think it was Michael Wisher, but apparently it's um, Jewel Tarrant, or rather the girl who plays Jewel Tarrant, Mike Lee Bryant, and the guy who plays Uhu Man doing the screams. So, um, yeah, but all things considered, I would keep it in. You're right oh, about the silence at the start. That's great. But if the best thing you can say about a score is that it's it's not there for the first <laughs> 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, going Although, back to that. Yeah, yeah. The, the cue. Yeah, the, I'm thinking of. There's a really nice cue when it cuts from the Doctor being attacked by Exxons to Sarah waking up in the cell. There's a lovely, soft little bit of music. And if he'd done it like that all the way through, it would have been so much better than the Mr. Ben theme tune. Don't you love the bit? You know, when she's uh, towards the end of episode two, where Sarah's in the cave, and it's like. Duh, duh, duh. Da, 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 yeah, da, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love all yeah. of that, mind you. Yeah. Seven years old again. But I've yeah. I've got to counter that, Joe, with when we get three blind mice when the doctor comes back <laughs> from having been attacked by the, the root. <clears throat> Has the doctor survived? Hasn't he? Sarah's terrified, and we get three blind mice. Oh, he's <laughs> nothing if not original, and he's well, not original. I've never heard that before in Doctor Who, so true originality. Um, okay, so I've got the casting vote on this one. Mm. Go with your inner child, Ros. <laughs> there are good and bad. Everything I've written down for my reasons, I find good, but then I find bad. So there is some really original stuff here. I like the stuff about the city. <laughs> the fact that the city's got a, a you know a root system. Uh, we hear that the Exelons have travelled across the universe and inspired the uh, Aztecs' temples. You know that's really original. The fact that the city cast its inhabitants out, uh, and one of the one group worships it, and the other group wants to destroy it. You know, there's some really new and interesting ideas in there for Terry Nation. Um, the games on the, on the floor and the games through the city. That's new at this stage. And obviously we get it later on. We get it in Pyramids of Mars. We get it again in, in Five Doctors. So there are new stuff here, but you're also mixed with one hell of a lot, as I think James rightly pointed out, of Terry Nation tropes, um, space plague. When John Pope talks about you and your space chums, 
Uh, that was that was the idea. <laughs> what does Capaldi say in uh, Just put the word space in front of anything. But space jumps was, was, was pretty much. Terranation did that for about four decades. Oh my goodness. Um, but we've got the good old gravel pits. This was originally written to be a jungle, but um, Terry Nation was told, no, it can't be a jungle because you just, just have a jungle. jungle. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so have a gravel pit because that's really original. <laughs> so, yeah, there's that. The characters, yeah, the characters for me really drag it down. I mean, Jill Tarrant, <laughs> she is in the Marine Space Corps. How did that woman get into the Marine Space Corps? She's awful. I mean, the, the Joe, I, I I don't know. I can't even bring myself to speak to in future. You recommended the cliffhanger of episode one, which is possibly one of the nadirs of Doctor Who. They all run out to see this the saucer landing. They all look in completely different Here directions. Here she comes! Yeah, they're all <laughs> looking in completely different directions. John Abenary, who is usually a solid performance, has a terrible delivery of wait, you can't, as the Daleks come out. I mean, it's and then the music of, of Carrie it Blythe. Ends, it ends on a Dalek firing. So it's the ultimate. How yeah, are they going to uh, get it out It ends on a, about a three-minute shot of a Dalek firing, clearly not successfully firing. And then it cuts to John Pertwee, who we hold holding, for another five minutes, clearly not being shot. holding the mess that is Jill Tarrant as she crumbles into his arm. It's, it's very stock. I do like <laughs> Galloway. I think Duncan Lamont is very good in his role. He was apparently the, uh, quite a star. And he, his name was kind of put out there as being the lead for this story or the lead guest star for this. Belal is great, great character. Love Belal. Atmosphere, again, you see the atmosphere is up and down. You're right, the early shots with the um, stuff on film and all the dry ice and the TARDIS landing that, that's really the atmospheric. sound effects are great as well. The they planetary are, then, sound effects. And... But then you go to the area where the Dalek spaceship lands and it's so, you know, I can't look Doctor <laughs> it's Who. For so, it's so, it's studio, isn't it? It's the juxtaposition between the two. It just doesn't that work. Dreadful CSO shot of the interior yeah. of the spaceship. I mean, I love the chanting music. I think that's really atmospheric, but then you've got the rest of the music. And I just think for every good, there's too much bad. So I'm sorry, guys. Oh, it's a no for me. No. It's going to exit. I'm with you, James. It's leaving the competition. Devastated. Honestly, that might be a Hoover attachment, but the way it screamed like that, seven-year-old me was terrified. <laughs> I could even see the wire and I was still scared. <laughs> so we are left weirdly with the Time Warrior. I think it's I think it's the strongest in the season in a lot of ways. Um I think it's a brilliant script and I've seen this one quite a lot because it's one of the ones that uh, uh, was out on VHS early and which I borrowed and watched again and again and again. So I, I know it pretty well. And every time I'm struck by how clever and how subtle this writing is, how clever it is that Iron and Lynx are basically the same character and they both think the other is uncivilized for different reasons. Um, the, 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 the comics, I mean, it's basically a comedy script um, with some pretty high stakes. Um, and I think John Pertwee and Elizabeth Sladen throw themselves into that and play it absolutely for real. But it's it's really funny that the, it, it is kind of I mean, talking about this season being a bit of a soft reboot and a, a bit of a fresh feel. I mean, they do they go back in history and it's and it's Doctor Who in an exciting yarn with some some 
some knights and some peasants and it's got it's got all the kind of cliches but they're all quite well-drawn characters and they're and the dialogue is so funny and so well written and the, the turns of phrase you get in there it's such, such a quotable script um i think that i'm just going to be stating the obvious but of all these stories i think the design is the strongest i think it's it, it, it's a it's a pretty convincing um medieval england and Clearly, at the centre of it is the Sontaran design. You've got this incredibly alien-looking spaceship, so simple but but so jarring in that context. And the design of the Sontaran is is rightly lauded as what you know one of the great things to come out of classic Doctor Who. It's it's a a, a brilliant design, a brilliantly alien, and and yet it is still a punchline. You know, the the joke is that he, he takes off his helmet and his head is the same shape. You know, which it, it, it's a it's a brilliant joke as well. I could go on, but I but I want to let other people talk because otherwise I'm just going to be listing kind of I'm just going to start quoting it and um and going through it from episode one onwards. But <laughs> I can't I can't see how you wouldn't enjoy this story. It's 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 just it's a it's a decent yarn and I think it's perfectly well realized. Not perfectly realized, but I think there there's nothing in this that gives me kind of any any trouble. I know that. Barry Letts felt the special effects were a little bit disappointing as a child, as the child who would have spotted the wrinkles in the in the the rug of doom in Death of the Daleks. <laughs> I thought that castle exploding was as good as the explosion in the demons. Didn't have a problem with it at all. Great score as well. Dudley Simpson again. Just lovely stuff. Should we go to the comments, Joe? Yes. Okay. Start us off. Yeah, so Lucy McCall said it's my favourite for the historical setting, the introduction of Sontaran, and best of all, the introduction of Sarah Jane as an intelligent companion with an inquiring mind, something that carries on in dinosaurs. Paul Quinn says, Holmes' second truly great script. Ooh, I wonder what the first is. Lynx is that rarity, a monster that is also an individual character. The Pertwee run is very good on that. Michael Storm said, I'm prepared for some aggressive tutting, but the Time Warrior is the worst of the season. Ooh. Direction is incredibly flat. The story is laid out straight away, rubbing, rubbing any mystery to the events. Other than Link's Ningrom, the supporting characters are dull, and pound shop Tim Brooke Taylor is annoying. <laughs> I presume he means Professor Rubish. Oh, <laughs> Joe Llewellyn says, a fantastic introduction to one of the great companions and monsters. It's a double Taylor movie. Edwards. Yep, Taylor Edwards said one of the best home scripts. Michael Donahue says Sarah is great from the off. Lynx is a great villain, and it's good to see Pertwee in a historical for once. Rich says the Time Warrior is the best story. It's introduced the Sontarans and Gallifrey and is a strong star for the character Sarah. The story is also a great jumping on point for new viewers. The pairing of Pertwee and Sladen is hugely underrated. And the last word goes to Tony Filer, who says hard to beat Time Warrior on any level. Stands tall amongst the best of who? Who who was it? Who said the characters were dull? Is that Michael Storm? It was. I mean, you've got. I I think Bloodaxe is as good a character as Iron and as a double act, they are they are absolutely brilliant together. I think I think he's his earnestness, his being even thicker than Iron is is a brilliant joke and brilliantly written. I think that um, Edward of Wessex and Lady Eleanor are brilliant characters. You've got June Brown there for goodness sake, being absolutely you know clearly wearing the trousers in that relationship. She just needed I, the the fag hanging out. Oh, she, she, she almost does. She couldn't have done the lines in the dot com voice. 
she went, <laughs> that just would have been. So she says, "You mean you're going to brew up a potion to slay the dog?" <laughs> Oh, oh, I no. to to slime on that. oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah, it could have been better then. It, it, it could have been better. Yeah. And a word of praise also for Meg, <laughs> <laughs> the greatest wench doctor who has ever seen in that wig. It's like someone in the costume department said, Should we, should we comb this wig? No, no, let's just buy, should we put it on straight? No, no, no let's just put it, let's put it on and see what she does with it. And she, she runs with the wig. It's been in a cupboard since an unearthly child. Yes. <laughs> the way she chews out that was it. Oh, my dear, I'll give you bread and cheese, but you'll have to earn it. <laughs> like it's crazy. <laughs> Come on, Ed John, what do you think? Well, I, I like it as well. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, it's, you know, I'm, I'm finding positives in everything here. So it's, it's probably we not. We should the... have had you on a new series episode, shouldn't we? No, <laughs> I'm not getting him on anything with Murray Gold from what he said. No, 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 no. No, well, I think going back to the whole reboot thing, it's you know, it's it's strange for as a couple of fans that think that Pertwee's phoning it in because I think he's really energized at this. It's almost kind of like he feels refreshed by the whole um, the whole new challenge, which is weird because they filmed it um, straight after the Green Death. Which was when, um, you know, just after just after Casey Manning left, um, it was I think it was actually a couple of days before Roger Delgado was sadly killed in the road accident. Um, I think it was four days before. But John Pertwee feels really energized, and um, there, there are just so many funny jokes in this. And I think one of them is like um, the bit when Rubish says, you know, uh, yeah, John Pertwee goes. Oh, I've got to go off and meet a, find a young girl. I mean, he goes, a young girl? I thought he was too old for that sort of thing. That is just pricey. It's just the delivery as well. That is I, the dirtiest joke to that point in Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. of course, these days they make a kneel out of it. You know, perhaps an innuendo will just make you know, a song and dance back. But here it's quite subtle and it's quite innocent and it's more funny, I think. Um, yeah, the, the I, I really like the setting of it. It's, it's quite unusual for the Doctor actually to go back in time. Going back to what somebody said about Tim Brooke Taylor, they just done the goodies episode Camelot a couple of weeks before, which is, you know, it's sort of a similar kind of feel to it. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of fun as well um, in this one. It's, it's quite surprisingly quite lighthearted because, you know, the, the John Pert we use are quite normally quite serious and quite reserved. Um, but this has got a lot of welcome humour in it, and I think it's kind of revitalised John Pertwee, um, who's also really funny is the um, the robot knight when he pretends to dupe Iron and he fights against him, um, and he goes, uh, "Isn't that a bit unsporting, old chap?" You know, <laughs> and that, that is, it's just so many funny lines in it, um, <clears throat> and also what James said about the uh, the exploding ball of it, I, I don't mind that. I think actually think the CGI version looks rubbish compared to it. It looks like some really cheap computer game that was came out in 1995. It just it, it's, it's you know nothing wrong with the original at all. I think that makes me know. so sad. That documentary where Barry Letts sits there and says, "And at last, I'm going to be able to watch this with the special effects it deserves." Oh, and that CGI is appalling, isn't it? Oh, yeah, God. yeah, it's it's just rubbish. I mean, God, you know, just leave it as it is. You know, to be honest, I, I you know. I feel like it's kind of heresy watching it with CGI effects. You know, not not just this one, but any of the ones that have got, you know, redone effects. I mean, just 
You know, it's what TV was at the time, you know, take it or leave it. And uh, in this case, I take it, you know, completely. The story so it's, it's, it's good, and I'm nominated to keep it. I'm going to keep it in as well. Um, yeah, I think it's a great story. I mean, the fact that the Sontarans were such a well-realised race, the fact they're still around today and we're still talking about them and they're in the current series, I think just is testament to the fact that Holmes came up with a quite a unique, strong concept for for a villain. Um, the design is is absolutely superb. I don't think actually it's ever been bettered. I think the original um, links and, and Kevin Lindsay's performance is just, yeah, it was just on point. Uh, and I think that's, I say, the fact that it's still around today says it was a really good design. The setting, like you say, this is this is Pertwee's only full pseudo-historical, and I think he, he really revels in that. And Holmes definitely revels in it because it gives him opportunity to go full blast with with that uh, language and use as plummy a language as he can possibly get. Um, I'm going to call out the scene in the kitchen in episode three between Pertwee and Slade, and which I think is just a lovely scene in the history of Doctor Who with Sarah coming to kind of terms with the fact that Doctor's alien and he's a Time Lord. And it's it's just so playful and delightful. And Pertwee says, oh, yes, Time Lords, they're of intergalactic ticket inspectors uh, it's just lovely dialogue and I, there's loads of quotable lines in this you know a straight line what is it a, a straight line is the shortest distance between two points but it's by no means the most interesting um i'm serious about what i do but not necessarily about how i do it i mean there's so many quotable lines in this isn't that it's uh yeah it's comedy it's comedy through and through sometimes i feel it's just missing I'm not sure what it is. It's really hard to quantify, but it, it just feels like it's missing one small <coughs> element to kind of take it into the the greatest echelons. But yeah, generally it, it's pretty damn solid. Although I would ask what, what Sontarans have got against robots because the robot in this and then the robot in the Sontaran experiment, they have the most appalling robots. How are they doing so well in the war <laughs> against the Rutans? Because they can't make a robot that to save their lives. Um, and finally, yeah, Obviously, got to mention Elizabeth Slade in her debut. You know, she just hits the ground running from from day one. She's just, I think I mentioned before, she's incredibly naturalistic. The scene where she gets dragged off by Iyengren's men, and she's just shouting, get off! It's just really natural. And it feels quite different companions that we've had in the past. Um, when the doctor exasperates and she's like, oh, I could murder a cup of tea. It's just, you just feel she's real, she's human, um, and she's lovely. So, yeah, for lots and lots of reasons, I'm going to put this one through. Um, I'm also going to put this through. I mean, I couldn't argue against any of what any of you are saying. It's just really fucking funny, this, isn't it? It's so funny. Um, and I think Doctor Who can cover a multitude of sins if it's funny, it, but it's not actually committing any sins. It's, it's beautifully designed it's got terrific location work i think alan bromley's direction is a lot better a lot of people say it's very pedestrian i think he shoots brilliantly on location and he's not too bad in the studio either it's well lit the costumes are great the music was great as james said it's got it gives it real pace but it is just so funny unfortunately you've stolen one of the three <coughs> lines i was going to quote Sorry, as to why this is so great galactic <laughs> Ticket inspectors, oh, I could murder a cup of tea. It just brings it all <laughs> down to the domestic level. But my favourite Sarah Jane line is, um, why don't you take off that ridiculous gear and go home to your butcher's shop? I love that bit. <laughs> and of course, in episode four, where she just goes, look at that great spider, which is very funny again. 
It's just it is just an incredibly witty script. It's sort of between this and Carnival of Monsters, I think for Holmes' funniest script, this one might win out. But yeah, it's a win. It's a great start to the season. It's a brilliant introduction of Sarah Jane and the Sontarans. And it's just a great historical romp as well. And we haven't had enough history in Doctor Who for a long time. Oh, and lest we forget, it's like you're living in the Middle Ages. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did I forget that one? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, it's funny. It was very Brilliant. Funny. So we get to the end of round one. Round two <laughs> is much shorter. Round two is very we, short, all right? Traditionally, we do it in about three seconds, yeah. Um, we've knocked two stories out. So the first one we lost, unbelievably, was Planet of the Spiders. And then Death to the Daleks also went by the wayside. So we're left with Time Warrior, Dinosaurs, and Peladon. So what we're going to do here is I've got a random generator. I'm going to spin it, um, pick two stories against each other, and we've just got to decide which is our favourite. So the wheel, the hamster John wheel is pain that he's going to have to do this. The first one is Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and Invasion of the Dinosaurs will be playing the Time Warrior. Oh, oh shit! <laughs> no one wanted that to happen, did they? No, oh. no, that oh. means Peladon's in the final. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty much whatever wins I, this is going I to feel win. Partially responsible. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to choose the Time Warrior. It's shorter. It's funnier. I think on the whole, it's better. Real, better realised. Um, yeah. So the Time Warrior for me. I'm going Invasion of the Dinosaurs because I think there's a bit more to it. It's got something more to say. Um, yeah, it's, make, it's making more of a point. Um, Six probably does drag a little bit. We could have lost the chase sequence or in, you know, for half of episode five, but it's got a lot more to say. So I'm going with Invasion of the Dinosaurs. James and John. <laughs> Very tense, isn't it? When they release a special edition of Invasion of the Dinosaurs and edit units out of episode one and then edit all the spaceship scenes together so that we don't know that Sarah actually is just on a fake spaceship that from the moment she's on it. I oh, think and they need to happen. edit out the blood that's on her head because that's still fresh, even though it's three months later. Yeah, or put a hat on her or something, a CGI hat or something, because they probably would have done... Or, yeah. Um... Yeah, then then I think uh, then I think dinosaurs will be in with a chance, but it's too, it, there are too many problems with it, and as I say, I think it's it's just slightly trading on former glories. It's not the best deserted London story. It's not the best Doctor Who goes into the underground story. So I am voting for the Time Warrior. Sorry, I'm going to go with Invasion of Dinosaurs because I, I think there's a lot to recommend it. I, I, I really like the atmosphere of it. Uh, I, I like the intrigue, I like the plot, I like the twists and turns, and I think it proves that Doctor Who was still willing to try something different at this point, you know, and actually have one of the unit team go, you know, go rogue. It's actually kind of like, you know, the you know the beginning of the end, I think, of A Pertwee Years. It's actually seeing that team break up, it's actually seeing it break up on the screen as well so sorry guys invasion of the dinosaurs for me okay well because we've got another story let's park that for the time being and let's <laughs> see because you never know what might happen so we've got invasion of the dinosaurs and obviously it's got to be monster of paladon so paladon versus dinosaurs 
I'm not going to be that contrary. I'm going to go for dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. James. Oh, look, head says Peladon, actually, but heart says dinosaurs. Uh, dinosaurs as well. Okay, so Peladon falls into third place. So we've got we've got a battle between War- Time Warrior and dinosaurs. Oh man, no we've one's going to budge. We, there's got to be some concession somewhere. <laughs> Is there anyone sitting on the fence? Okay, let me really. I'm going to lay into dinosaurs now. One of the one of the the problems with dinosaurs that is is writ large from the beginning is that every single guest character is a traitor, and uh, you know it becomes so obvious. And it's not even like one of them's left until the final episode. Uh, they're all revealed by the end of part three. We know that they're all traitors, and it pretty much is kind of like well, okay. The only person left who could be a traitor is the brigadier. But when the twist is that the brigadier is not a traitor you know that the storytelling has taken a wrong turn somewhere. I think there's, although I went for dinosaurs, there is more padding in dinosaurs than there is in Time Warrior. Um, I'll concede. I'll, I'll concede. Oh, yes. I'll oh. go Time Warrior. Do you know Sorry, what? I, there you I go. knew I'm going to be a turncoat. I don't know how. I knew it was going to come down to Invasion of Dinosaurs and the Time Warrior for that season. And Time Warrior takes it. So we've got a winner. I'm not going to say clear winner, but we've got a winner for season 11. Thank you very much, gentlemen. That was well, we a found well, nice things to say about all well, five of the stories. Though, we did. We? In fact, the passionate defence of Monster Repelodon was nothing. I didn't think I would see that coming a mile off. So thank you for that. I surprised myself, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Thank you all for your views and opinions. Um, next podcast, it's season 18. So we're through to a time of lots of beards and lots of entropy and lots of technobabble. Um, James, John, would you like to direct people to your social media or plug anything that you're involved in at the moment? Well, you can find me on uh, the artist formerly known as Twitter at James Lark. <laughs> and uh, I have a podcast of my own. It's not been updated very recently, but there are some more episodes planned for 2024 uh it's called neurotic literature uh neurotic not erotic don't search for that unless well oh, I, mean, I was unless already it, looking i'm glad already already <laughs> if you're prepared to live with the nightmares but no neurotic <laughs> literature it's it's short stories um and uh they've been described as what um pg woodhouse would have written if he written horror oh, excellent it sounds amazing. most intriguing john um, well, my that's I still call it Twitter. Um, if if you couldn't spell it, then it's John Bensalia at Twitter, and that's it. Ah, uh, no, that's not it. Excuse me. John has written a range of fabulous Doctor Who review books called Perpetual Outsider, of which I have read all of them several times. They're in separate volumes. They're available as eBooks. Check them out on Amazon. He's a very smart, very funny writer. Why didn't you mention those? Thank you. Oh, I forgot. One pound eighty each. <laughs> They're one pound eighty each. Kindle. They are such witty reviews. I just, I absolutely adore. I love your writing. Perpetual <laughs> Outsider. Go and find them. Brilliant. So all it remains is us to thank so much, James and John, for being two superb guests. Um, for Thank our you. third. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you very much. You are most welcome, and you're both most welcome back again for a future instalment. Um, and that's it. That's it for tonight. So thank you for listening. Joe, are you ready this time? I know what I've got to say Are you ready this time? Yeah, I'm ready. Fantastic. Okay. So thank you for listening. And until next time, keep keep listening. listening. Good night.